Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and unlearning the programming within us. Let's uncover your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. you start to develop a relationship with the soul, everything else just starts to unfold. Yeah. And, and, you know, in English, we don't have the right words because relationship with the soul is not actually correct because it's like recognizing that what I am is that, Oh, right. Yeah. It's, it's God. a tricky thing because we could say like talking to our soul, but then it's like, who's doing the talking, <laughs> yeah. right? You know what I mean? But uh, the one who taught me about that first was Paul Check. It starts by just closing your eyes and tuning in with yourself and asking yourself, dear soul, please show me what a yes looks like and feels like. For me, I notice this rising of energy that surges up through my body and kind of comes up into like my face and my nose. Everybody has their own unique signature. Mine starts kind of in my gut, comes up through the heart, through the chest. And then I feel this like pulsing in my ears. Am I better than yours? There's no such thing. (laughs) (laughs) Then say, dear soul, show me what my no looks like. Notice what you feel and what happens. I feel this like tension in my chest from almost from like shoulder to shoulder. It's just like. So now that you know how to do it, how to talk to that part of yourself and identifying with that as you, you start small. You say, dear soul, would you like chicken or beef? You don't start off with, should I leave this relationship? You start with these little small things that don't mean much and you start practicing with it. I love this. So you start practicing these kinds of things and it takes a while to really learn that signature because what's really interesting about it is that the ego can do a very good job at impersonating the soul because the ego will do whatever it can to protect itself. The ego is your primary identity. Your soul's never going to tell you to do something that is against your overall well-being. It's really centering yourself, taking time to clear yourself and wait till you feel centered. If you can imagine stepping into a pond and then seeing all of the ripples go and then imagining waiting till all of those ripples go away and the pond is completely still again and then asking the question and let the question bubble up from that place without a level of detachment to the outcome. And then when you're coming from that place, you're living with your full potential. You know, water in general is like, there's, there's so much more to know. I mean, at my house, in the style of Paul Check, I have an enormous crystal um, water charger that's basically alternating rocks of yin and yang in like a, kind of like a dome function with lots of crystals. And so I take these five-gallon jugs of Mountain Valley water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I take these five-gallon jugs of Mountain Valley water in glass and place them inside the crystal charger for at least a 24 hour period. And then what's essentially happening is, you know, water that we're normally drinking, first of all, if it comes through like the pipes, it's hitting all of the the 90 degree angles, which water never wants to touch. Water always moves in like a, like a circular. Like a vortex. Yeah. Like a vortex. or uh, I forget the word, but you know, it's circulating, right? If you Mm -hmm. go out in nature, you see water circulating around rocks but we have them sitting in these bottles in these plastic bottles that are like pooling and crunching, let alone all the estrogens coming from the plastic, which is like totally screwing everybody, particularly young men Mm. um, with now extremely high estrogen levels. But back to the charging, this whole idea is that water is is the largest carrier of of energy and information. And normally in nature where we were drinking water that was coming down like a stream, let's say, exposed to the sun, exposed to the seasons, exposed to the 
all of the different elements, right? Like the minerals. The minerals. And they are also getting like homeopathic doses of the the energy and information of of things in nature that are like bacteria and fungus. Can you explain just homeopathic just for- What homeopathic is, is basically, you know, removing the particle that's inside of like, say a solution. So, you know, you put like, let's say the flu virus in a solution. And then you keep diluting it and diluting it into diluting it until you can't actually find any of the particle of what you originally put in there. But what's remaining is the energy yeah. of it. And so the water is sort of carrying these sort of energetic um, signatures of the various things in nature. So when you're drinking the water, it's informing your immune system of what you might come across. Mm. Right. And so, you know, the full moon or the new moon or, you know, the bugs that, fly around it, all of this information, all of this life force is then infused into the water, which then comes into our body. And just like eating processed food, if you eat processed food, your body has to actually use more energy than it's receiving from the food to convert it into, into human cells. Would you, would you equate the, 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 this idea of water into like the, for, for the, trees and plants for the mycelium network? Is it similar the way that uses information? Um, In what way? Well, I just, I'm hearing like, it's like a carrier of information. And I feel like the mycelium network, which is under, you know, within the earth around us, that it is allowing communication from one tree to another to say, Hey, look, this is right. This this, is what's going on. This potential, you know, uh, predator or whatever the, the proper term is, is coming into our ecosystem. You need this to protect yourself. And it kind of sends it out in that way. So I feel like the water coming down, the bugs, the insects, the different things that are in the environment. Totally. Yeah. And we, we've closed ourselves off to that, right? We don't realize that as human beings, we are open energy systems. We are totally in contact with everything. Everything in this room right now is having an effect on us energetically, right? how we're sitting right now and what that relationship is to everything around us in the room is putting us in a particular type of energy. And so, you know, Native Americans and even my work in process work, there's this idea of earth spots. Like there's a particular spot on the earth that resonates with you. So, you know, when I go out and, you know, this is what we do in biogeometry. So if I'm going outside and I'm doing Tai Chi, I can take my pendulum, stand in a particular spot and rotate myself like let's say clockwise while I'm measuring to find what's the right position for me at this time of the day in relationship to my environment, that's going to give me the most amount of energy. Right? Really? So all of these things are always talking to us and interacting with us all the time. And so water, you know, just to get back to that thought, like when we have processed food, um, which we don't, but if we did, um, and I highly recommend against that, but your body has to use more energy to turn that into something that your body recognizes as food. It's actually depleting you. And so the same thing happens with water. So if you're drinking like, you know, Dasani or some kind of crap bottled tap water, your body, it's, it's, which is extremely acidic, by the way, your body doesn't even has to work to convert that and to structure it into what it normally knows as water, let alone the fact that it's informationless. So, you know, if you're drinking tap water, let's say in New York City, where I lived uh, for many years, even if you're filtering your water, think about all of the homeopathic doses mm. of all of the toxins, all of the medications people are taking, 
all of the antibiotics that they're pissing out and then it's going back into the water stream and then it's being filtered. But they forget that even though they can't find the particle there, they, they, the energetic signature. And that's why, you know, antibiotics and things like that don't work for anybody anymore for the most part. You know, we're, you know antibiotics are like, at, in some point, they say that they're not even going to be effective because of the overuse of them. But, you know, in my opinion, we're all sort of exposed to these things unless we take, you know, what's going into our body very seriously. You know, so the water that is coming out of the tap is hitting these 90 degree angles, going through these rusty pipes, then maybe being filtered, which also destructures it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, maybe a necessity depending on where you're living and what's in your water. And then this whole idea of actually revitalizing the water and using the water as a tool to receive energy and information, right? So I know that when I'm drinking full moon water, it tastes a lot different than new moon water. I can taste the difference in my water from the summer to the winter, you know, through the stages of the moon, et cetera. And so you, you know, there's just so much more information to take in than, than we normally give credit to. Oh, I love that. And in fact, the, the, it makes the water taste a lot better as well. Well, did you see the little, little doohickey I have on yeah. the thing? So yeah. that restructures the water, it yep. vortexes it. And, and as you said, it just kind of puts this certain signature in it that it would, you know, ideally find in nature. Totally. And, you know, it, it also brings in the sense of ritual. And that's so important, right? You know, it's, it's, it's these little things. It's even like when you make your coffee, right? Instead of doing an instant coffee, having the pour over that you have or having a beautiful espresso machine and picking the, the, picking the, the right beans and, you know, tapping in the grinder and making sure the machine's clean and using structured water and then having this like moment where you enjoy this, right? And it's like, that's just making coffee. But if once we start doing those levels of mindfulness and we start stacking them throughout our day from what are we thinking about when we're getting up? How, how are we interacting with our water? for, you know, our tarot card pull, for our espresso, for being with our children, our work, et cetera. Those things are, are for me, they're really important and they bring so much more richness to life. Yeah. It's like water, people, <laughs> have you ever heard someone say, oh, you know, water's just water. Yeah, sure. Yeah, well. I'm sure, I've said hey, it man, a number of times. It's not, not recently. It's not just water. You know, water is not just water. Coffee is not just coffee. Food is not just food. There's a whole continuum of possibilities. Yeah. And I love, I love the, the, the example of coffee because I've gone, you know, in and out of, of, of my relationship with coffee. And, and when I wasn't drinking coffee, I really looked forward to the morning when, you know, my wife was still drinking it. So I got to make her the coffee, I get to go through the ritual. It didn't feel like I was missing out on the coffee. And I started to realize that actually that the, the, the little boost that I used to get from, from coffee and the caffeine, I wasn't getting anymore. So it, it almost was able to bypass maybe some of the negative effects. Totally. You know, what if the boost you're getting is from the process itself? <sighs> right. I mean, what, what if, what if what we're really looking for is not actual the substance, but the, 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 the process and the ceremony in doing it, right? Because, you know, you can switch from coffee and you can go to, to say like herbal tea and there's something about it that still feels pretty good because it's just like this process of taking a moment, having something warm and sipping it. You know, in, in, um, in, in Zen monasteries, right, there's, this, there's these legends of that somebody will train, a monk will train for 10 years. And then they'll go out into the world for 10 years. And when they come back, the, the head monk will sit with the, the person and just watch them drink tea. 
and how they drink the tea will say everything about their preparation for, you know, what they've achieved. Right. So mm. there's something so, so primal and important about, about ritual. Yeah. Well, uh- I'm interested to know more about your kind of morning ritual and, you know, the one thing that you said that really stood out for me as I've, I've really started to build this morning ritual. I still like the thoughts that I have when I wake up, they're trending away from my to-do list, right. which is great. Right. But there's still, I noticed that this morning, like I, there was a, the, the part of me, I just wanted to lay in bed with Peyton and just be there. Isn't that nice? And it was really nice, except there was a little, just a little bit of a thing that was pulling me out of that. And I kept like resisting it. Well, so the important thing to do, and we can get back to your question, but just an interesting thing is role play with that voice. Okay. So say, take both sides. Oh, I just really want to stay in bed today. You know, I just want to lie with my wife and just cuddle and just be a little bit lazy. Well, you're going to miss out on, you know, you have to do X, Y, Z. You have to be really productive. You know, you got to go out there. You know, you have this podcast today. You got to get your workout in and you got to do all these different things. But, oh, I just want to let go and just lie in bed. And you, you start having these conversations and taking the different sides. Yeah. And you can start to work it out. Well, I can already, I, I can see that playing out and just seeing how silly that, um, not silly, but I can, I can see the energy that's wanting to pull me into getting some work done. I see the, the, I see through that in a way that I wouldn't, wasn't able to before. And it's funny that somebody that I've been working with a coach, we've actually named that, that archetype as Brutus. It's like the go getter. Like you got to get shit done. Right. Got to show up, perform. So just talk to Brutus in the morning. Yeah. Brutus. I really appreciate you. You're really helpful to get things done. But right now I just need a little bit of rest. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> yes. So you didn't always have rituals or rituals that are maybe this rich. No. You're, you're no. one of the, the, so for, for, for those of you listening, today's guest, if you didn't look at the title, when you clicked play is, is Jason Picard. Jason and I met through his brother, Jared, who's also been on the podcast. And, um, one of the things I'm most excited about today is, and I've shared this with a lot of my friends is that you more than anyone I've had on the podcast and maybe anyone that I've ever met have walked a similar path to me. I've really felt that too. When we, when we talked on um, FaceTime yeah, a few weeks ago, I was like, there was like a light bulb that went off. Cause I was like, this is the only person I've met who really understands me because he's walked in my shoes in his own life. Yeah. It was really interesting. Yeah, so I'm excited to really dig yeah. into that stuff and just, you know, to give my listeners a little more context for, you know, who, who I've been in these 50 years and the different iterations and, 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 and again, your story, I think it really lends itself to anyone listening that we get those nudges and like, what can be on the other side of, that maybe limiting belief that, you know, I'm, 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 I can only be a trader. You know, I, I had that thought for a long time. Like I'm, I don't have any transferable skills. I'm just a trader. Like, what am I going to do when this is over? Right. Um, 
And so just like exploring that, letting people know that like that shit we all deal with and there's, there's kind of a way to sit with it and there's a way through it, through your experience, through my experience that maybe shed some light in, in, into, into that for others. Totally. You know, the things that you were saying before about this Brutus and all that, it's like, we have this, this primary process. This is like what we identify with in ourselves. You know, I, my name's Jason. I'm heterosexual. I'm white. I'm this, I'm that, you know, I'm a traitor. And these, these are the things that are really known to us, who we think we are, um, what society tells us to do, what our parents have taught us, what our religion has taught us. Um, it's these things of like a real man has to do dot, dot, dot. Oof, that's you such know? Brutus energy. In our family, we never do this. In our family, we always do that, right? Um, there's these, there's these, uh, this is identity. This is this primary process that we kind of get narrowed into at some point in our childhood from this kind of open, expansive place into this narrow vision of who we are. And then there's this secondary process. This is like the part that we're evolving into this part that is really more of our complete self, but it's unknown to us. Right. So, you know, for me as a trader, this secondary process was like more of this like creative side. It's the person that wants to just lay in bed a little bit more. Right. So my primary process is more like the Brutus. It's like, got to get a lot done, got to accomplish a lot. And it's for me, what's secondary is this, this idea of like way, woo way action without action, like just being instead of trying to do all the time and playing with, you know, unbound play with no outcome or reason why you're doing what you're doing. Go back to the way we way. Cause that, 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 yeah, that, that's a such a, for me personally, it came up. Um, Chase is here in the room as well. Chase was with, was with me when I went to Londolozi in South Africa in January. And I had some sort of, um, undiagnosed, uh, pathogen or whatever going on. And I was pretty much inactive, which is not my, my, my normal kind of way of being. Yeah. So what, what, what happens is we call in these events. Yeah. So your secondary process of, of let's just say lying in bed and being a little bit more relaxed and doing less. If you marginalize that, by not listening to that voice, it'll start to show up first in your dreams. And then it'll start to show up in little maybe flirts and little synchronicities. And then it'll show up in body symptoms. Then it'll show up in sickness, illness, disease, and then ultimately death, right? If you keep marginalizing these other parts of yourself. Mm. And so, you know, when you get, mm, I like this. If, you, if, if you're not listening to the, the little voice that says lying in bed, and you marginalize that, eventually you'll be on the road and you'll pick up some bacteria that will, will knock you down in bed <laughs> and won't give you the choice. Yeah. Right. And I've experienced that many times, many yeah. times. And so it's important to, to listen to these inner voices and to pay attention to what our fantasies are, what our flirts are. The whole world is, a, is always dreaming us up towards our wholeness. And we just have to pay attention to all these purposeful things that are happening all around us. And when we marginalize that, our body starts to give us symptoms. And we think of it as a disturbance, but it's really an ally. 
it's really an ally because it's, it's getting you to reflect and to look at the idea that there's more to who you are than what you're identifying with in that moment. And would this be, I mean, obviously the one component of this would be the pain teacher, right? Sure. Obviously Paul checks or maybe not obvious to everyone listening, but. And, in, in, and yeah, in that context, the pain teacher is an ally because the pain teacher is coming when you usually do what Paul calls a suboptimal choice, a choice that leads to instant gratification, but kind of long-term pain is not in alignment with your long-term dream of who you are and where you want to go. And it brings along the pain teacher, which is an ally because it's helping you back to your, your compass or your North star. That's so good. And that, that, that motherfucker came by a couple weeks ago, probably three weeks ago now. And it was in, it, he showed up in my lower back and it just locked up spasmed almost for like a week. And what really came out of that was the most incredible gift. I mean, really, it, 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 it finally forced me. I had this idea that I was exhausted. I needed to rest. It forced me into rest. And it forced me to confront that Brutus was still running the ship. And in, in, in listening to that and creating space for me to rest and recover and build my chi, build my energy, I created space for my relationship with my wife. And, you know, as you know, I've been married 22 years and I just don't know that we've, we've ever seen each other like we do now. I mean, yeah, we were in love in the beginning and all that, but over time you get into some patterning and I felt like that broke both of us out of that pattern. And, you know, it's been three weeks of just, I mean, I, I just, the love I have for her, I didn't know if I could ever feel that way. Yeah. Uh, Cause I was trying, which is the, part of the problem as I was trying, I was looking for solutions when back to the, you know, and I'm sure we'll get into the, I, we all, I wasn't taking care of I. Yeah. And once I did that, like, fuck, everything opened up. Well, you know, you can, you can only bring to a relationship what you've cultivated in yourself. You know, Paul talks a lot about this, but if you have a 10% deficit in, in yourself, the relationship has a 20% deficit when you're, you know, you're bringing your 50% in, right? Because that person that you're in relationship with can only have access, has basically access to 10% less of you and you're bringing 10% less of yourself to the relationship. You know, the word relationship says re- Elation, ship. How do we make our relationships a ship or a vehicle to be re-elated every time we see our partner, right? Mm. We, sometimes we see our friends and we're happier than when we see our partners, right? Yeah. Or, or because they're these people that are really close to us. But like to see your partner every moment, like, thank you for being here. Wow. I mean, it's just so incredible to be with such a beautiful person. It's like sharing your life with me and to be elated, like seeing a long lost friend again for the first time, each time. And it, it, of course, life makes that challenging mm -hmm. and relationships certainly, in my opinion, have been the greatest spiritual path that I've had. Oh yeah. And, and as well, I'm sure, you know, you've probably experienced with your own kids, like just what that 
you know, for me is brought up and, and, and really just trying to show up for them in a way that they need me to not how I think I'm supposed to. And that's the most important point because one of the biggest problems with education right now, okay. The, the word education originally came from a Sanskrit word and we could talk more about Sanskrit because it's so cool. Um, called Adhikari, Adhikari, which is a, an amazing word. And it basically means like assessing one's ability for what they're ready for in education in that moment based on their life experience and all of their previous life's experience up to that point. Adhikari went to edukare in Greek and edukari means drawing from, from inside out, drawing something from inside somebody. And then we go to education, which is, means like dumping a lot of useless information. Yeah, memorizing you. some shit. Right. So the, the, the key point, though, of what, what you said about giving them what they need. In ancient Vedic times, you would know the Jyotish or the, the astrological importance of your child's birth. They came in with this sun, this moon, this physical body, these attributes. Based on that, they would be, you know, on a broad sense, split up into what is now called the caste system, but that's a very colonized word that, that they never had in India until the Portuguese brought it in, but originally called Varnas. And Varnas are the four, the four different types. So you have the warrior type, the protecting. So if you're like, if you work for the FBI, if you're a police officer, if you're a bouncer, anything where you're doing where you're protecting, you're a warrior. The Brahmin type, the professor type, which is the head. Okay, so if you're teaching, if you're a mentor, if you're a coach, if you're a wisdom teacher, et cetera, you're the professor. If you're the warrior, you're the arms, protecting. There's the producer, which is if you're a banker, like when we're on Wall Street, we're a producer. If you're a farmer, you're a producer. That's the stomach. And the legs are the provider, which is what most people are, you know, providers of services like chiropractor, massage, nail salon, et cetera, right? And so you're first looking at your child from the perspective of what are they most inclined to be good at based on this choice that they took as a soul or in Sanskrit, Atma, to come down and partic- you know, choose you as parents at this very scientific, specific time in history where the sun and the moon and the planets were in a very particular, unique uh, organization. And that that was done purposefully and mindfully so that they are now inclined to be in a certain different type of work. Go a little deeper into that because I, that I'm, I'm with you on that. Right. I just don't know if a lot of people listening are familiar with the concept of us choosing our parents and our yeah. time and place and our, our basically our, the experience we're meant to have on earth yeah. as we're eternal beings. Well, one of the things that, you know, has helped me in that is, is studying the, you know, the Vedas and the Vedic scriptures. And in the Vedas, they explain that as we are an Atma, an Atma, not the Atma, we are an Atma, according to, you know, which is, is translated as soul. But the word soul means sun and the sun eventually burns out. And what we are does never burn, never burns out. We are, we have never been born and we are never, never dying. 
We are an immortal, indivisible individual. And according to the Vedas, we choose based on, there's, you know, we have choice, but we also have karma based on what we've done in past lives. And all of that lines up for us to be born at a particular time. And the way it works is these planets and the way that they're organized around our birth and then throughout our life, literally they, they, they say graha, which means to grab. They literally are grabbing us and delivering little bits of karma and little sort of situations that, that put us in different positions for us to grow and evolve based on all of our previous life's actions and based on what's going on now and you know, the position of the planets in the moment. And they also say that we can choose when we leave. We can choose when we leave. And there's particular times of the year where, in particular times of the moon cycle, where a very experienced yogi could decide, this is the time I'm going to leave my body and literally count down like 10, 9, 8, 7, 1, blast off and go. And this, you know, these are very highly evolved people, but there's records of people choosing when they leave. And it's also known in, in that culture that we choose when we come. And so back to the children, it's recognizing, you know, what is their astrological makeup and then watching them seeing what are they good at? You know, what do they like to do? What do they love to do? What brings them joy? And then based on their adhikari or their, their level of experience, we then cultivate education geared towards them and all of, in all of those concepts. And, and this is how we, we can create, you see this, all of these parts of the body, right? The head, the, uh, the arms, et cetera, the, the stomach, the legs, what part would you want to cut off? Right. And so we need all of these positions. Mm. Not one of them is better than, than the other. We are all one cell of the larger human body and, you know, providing a place in society. Um, you know, Arnie Mandel, my teacher of process work calls this deep democracy uh, in, in the Vedas, it would call, be called the social body. But this idea that like providing education geared towards everyone's particular inclinations to be a part mm. of this larger social body and then providing work and function and purpose for them within this. And we're all working together. I mean, that's real education, you know, and the, the other stuff about education is, you know, this is a little bit of my story, but, you know, I got to a point where I was, went to the university of Virginia, which is a great university. I graduated from the business school. I went on, I was, you know, extremely, extremely successful trader at a very young age. You know, by 26 years old, I was making multi-millions of dollars. I was now uh, a starting, you know, on the starting line <laughs> for- Top 30 under 30. Top 30. Yeah, top 30 under 30. And I was working for Paul Tudor Jones, which is my childhood um, mentor and, you know, idol, really dream. You know, That's so crazy. And I was, you know, partner, you know, youngest partner at the firm, but I was 330 pounds and I was like really close to having a, a serious, serious medical problem for the rest of my life that probably wasn't going to be very long. Well, and, and for context, what do you weigh right now? Just so people uh, understand. Like 165 or something <laughs> yes. like that. Yeah. Half. Yeah, half. Lost, yeah, I had to lose half my body weight. But I had this, this sort of, a, this moment where I realized that I went through all of this mainstream education, right? Went to the University of Virginia. I'm working on Wall Street. I'm, I'm ranked as one of the top traders in the world at what I'm doing. But I don't know anything about taking care of my body. 
I never learned anything about spirituality. I never learned anything about physical health, emotional health, mental health. All I had learned was how to be a producer. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting now that mm. I'm thinking about it because the, <laughs> the producer, like I said, was the stomach. And sort of the shadow side of being that producer was, might have been what was showing up in my huge gut that I was walking around with. Oh, shit. Right? You know, what was I trying to fill with that? But... My, yeah, my, my inspiration for all of this and really the importance, I think, of this conversation is how do we educate in kindergarten about these kinds of things? You know, bringing, learning about the physical body, learning about Paul Check's four doctors, learning about emotions and how to take care of your mind, learning about breathing and moving and pooping and sleeping and meditating and, you know, and how to really cultivate and, and nourish the soul uh, of our children to teach them about spirituality, teach them about, you know, the problems of having dogmatic, you know, closed-minded belief systems, exposing them to all sorts of various things and then see what their hearts pull them into and trusting in that wisdom. Yeah. So let's get practical with this. Uh, how old are your kids? I have a two, a six and an eight. Okay. Yeah. So probably more so for the six and eight year old, but what, what does that practically look like? How are you showing up differently than a traditional dad might? Oh man. Well, you know, I was talking about this with Chase earlier, you know, that's, that's really the big balance for people that are, are, are super motivated like ourselves. Like how do we balance wanting to produce something in the world, make an impact, take care of our own bodies, be with our wife or husband or, or partner, be with our children, be with our friends. And you know, how do we fit all of these things in? But I think the ultimate, the ultimate thing for children really is at that age, they're mirroring us. And so when we're showing up in our fullness, if they see us exercising, if they see us meditating, if we're doing that with them, if we're just being a good example and we're showing them like what life really can be and we live with this vitality and this fullness and this purposefulness, that's, that's contagious. You know, um, I think in terms of the children, it's, it's, it's trying to find the balance between guiding them and setting boundaries and then also recognizing them as a very wise soul and recognizing the wisdom in their bodies. Like, you know, if your kid comes up to you and says, you know, six-year-old, you know, I don't want to eat this, you know, well, we might say, well, you got to eat, you know, you got to have protein. You got to have protein. Well, dad, I don't like that. Well, no, you got to eat that. But what if, what if inside there is a soul that in a past life was like a vegetarian or something? And it's like the idea of, you know, a yogi sitting there and the idea of having that piece of meat is like, is just repulsive to their soul, right? Or yeah. there's some sort of wisdom in their body that they're going through some sort of change or some kind of detoxification process where they, they might need that. And so how to look at your, your children as both your children and guiding them, but also as your teachers. You know, I, I think that the evolution of souls coming in, especially imagine a soul being born at this particular time, mm. you know, like what, what being born into like this COVID type wow. era, you know, I, I feel as if they're like, you know, we're iPhone six and they're iPhone like 13, right? <sighs> they have a, a, a lot more, um, I don't know, technology, it seems to me. And finding the balance between tapping into that and listening to that. And then also, you know, guiding them without trying to be too dogmatic based on, you know, the way we think things need to be for them. Yeah, I love that. And I think one of the things you're touching on here and it's something I've talked about before, but it's, you know, well-intended parents 
unfortunately they come in and they, they um, make their children question their intuition and eventually they stop trusting it because everything that their intuition is saying is going against what mom and dad have for rules. Totally. And then eventually they just abandon it. And, and I think for me, one of the places where I was really able to tap into it was as a trader, right? You and I know that there's math involved, but it's, there's such a feel to when to buy, when to sell all that, that you can't explain. I right. just fucking knew not always right, but I just knew and you had the hunch and you, and you went on it. But, but for the most, you know, I would say most of my life, it's been about rediscovering that now. And like, what does it mean for me to really trust that sacral energy when it's a yes, just to go with it. And when it's anything, but it's a fucking no. And that's yeah. been a hard one for me. Well, there's, there's a couple of things there. I mean, one, one of the things that people don't realize when they're trading is that it's a living entity. Paul Tudor Jones used to call the market, Mr. Market. You know, he was, it, he had, there, there was a personality and a, and a relationship to it. And, you know, I'd go as far as saying it probably, probably be better to be called Mrs. Market because it can, you know, act a lot more nonlinear and a little bit uh, yeah. emotional than, than men sometimes I do. I like right? that. Yeah. So it's like, it's, you know, imagining this, the market as like a female being that's the, 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 the collective of all minds that are, are focusing on that. And, and, you know, and so Whoa, there, there, that just, there's a sense that of, just tripped me out a little bit. <laughs> I literally finally, for the first time I've ever thought about like, that makes so much sense. Right. And so, you know, you can even study like the, the, you know, the, or, I'm sure you're familiar with like Fibonacci sequences and things sure. like that. So, you know, if you look in nature and you look at like, let's say the way that a shell spirals and forms or, you know, from a shell on the beach to like, even probably like a turtle shell or, you know, uh, the, the, the dimensions of a leaf, there's these Fibonacci sequences, these sequences of numbers that are found in nature. And, you know, people have found that by, you know, just by looking at the charts that over long periods of time and also short periods of time, the markets actually move in these Fibonacci sequences as well in terms of like, you know, the retracements and the peak to troughs kinds of experiences. And so, you know, that's another just example, and there are many more, but that's an example of how the market is a living entity and it's acting under the, the same principles that nature is also operating under. Which isn't logical. And I think a lot of times we would try to put logic into, there's no way, it, but it's, how can it follow this pattern? It's because we are, we are energy. This whole thing yeah. is so much and more complex. How logical than, and linear are our emotions? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, <laughs> just look around the last couple of years. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, I mean, I think Alan Greenspan had, had this quote that said, the market can remain, the market can remain irrational longer than you can remain solvent. Right. Yeah. And so, you yeah. know, yeah. having, having a plan of, of uh, what can go wrong is actually a really important part of trading. You know, one of, one of the things Paul would have us do is each year we'd have to write sort of like a manifesto to ourselves about what we what we were going to do in a drawdown. Right. Because when you start losing money, if you're going down 2%, 3%, 5%, 10%, you're not thinking rationally. You're in this trade. You have this theory. You know, at this point, you've probably closed down all of the winners just to like invest in this one loser because you're so married to this idea. And then, you're, you know, you're, you're just not acting rationally at that point. So we had what we called a drawdown memo, which was before the year started stating, okay, if I go down 3%, I'm not going to change anything because I need to risk at least three to 5% in order to make, 
you know, 12 to 15%, which is what, you know, I'm expected to do. But if I go down six to 10%, okay, I'm going to cut my position size in half. I'm going to have this level of risk on overnight. I'm going to have, you know, dot, dot, dot. Right. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's an important part of bringing the more linear and logical into the irrational, realizing that you're dealing with something that can be unpredictable and the, the path is completely uncertain. And in fact, just like life and just like coaching, the, the process is everything, right? You can have the right thesis in trading, but like, you know, say, you know, crypto may, may go to Ethereum, may go to 10,000, but it may go to, you know, I don't know. $10. Zero first, yeah. right? So you can be right, but if you don't have, if you don't have the plan and the path for how to get there, that's the path is everything. The process is everything in trading. And that really connects to, into coaching. And the fact there, there are so many similarities that I've found in trading as is in coaching and yeah, let's, let, well, let's investigate that. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it's funny because, you know, right now I, I've been studying at the process work Institute and I'm, I'm calling myself a life process coach. And, you know, when I was trading and I would put together these presentations to talk about trading and I didn't know anything about life process or anything at that point, but you know, the number one rule I had was actually the, the number one rule is, be able to be able to, to describe how it is that you make money. What is your edge in one sentence at a fifth grade reading level? It wasn't uh, don't talk about fight club. <laughs> right. So, you know, most people don't know how to answer that question in their job. You know, if you, you know, if you, if, if you think about what it is that truly makes you successful at podcasting and being able to put that into one to two sentences, so that, you know, you could talk to your kids and that they could understand it, right? That's, that's taking the complex and putting it into, into, the, into simplicity. And that's a sign of somebody who really knows what they're doing. You know, people can take things complex. I'm working it out right now. I'm trying to work out that yeah. sentence. And I, I think I may just let it pass right now. Well, that was, that was just a... No, I like it though. Just an idea, right? But so that's the first thing is really understand what it is. That I'm going to let it go. I think <laughs> I, was, I was about to do it again. <laughs> okay. I digress. What's stopping you from saying that? Uh, yeah. No, I actually really want to. Uh, here's what's stopping. I don't want to sound like an asshole. Yeah, I, I want it to be, uh, I want to be able to articulate it in a way that is clear. And, but I also, there's the part that I need to own whatever part of this is my genius. And there's, uh, there's a fear in, being considered boastful in doing that. Right. So there's a lot of things that I would work with you on that in this moment. You know, for example, you're making certain hand signals, right? Yeah. So we, our, our body, so there's an edge there. So, you know, here you are, you want to say something, but you know, <laughs> badly, you want to pull on, <laughs> you want to pull on the secondary process, but there's an edge there, which is like, could be considered a ghost role. Somebody saying to you, don't say that right now. You're going to sound like an asshole. Yeah. And that might be your parents, that might be your society, your religion, um, whatever it is, right? So that's like that Brutus in a different- It could be my daughter. It could be anybody. <laughs> so like there, there are these edge figures that hold us back from our full potential and from being our full self. Now, that can sometimes be a good thing because there may be an edge figure that says, you know, you shouldn't run down the street naked because you might wind up in prison, right? And so that's a good time to keep the lid on. But often we're kind of keeping the lid on. But maybe true freedom is waiting for me in that jail cell. 
Maybe. Well, I don't really want to test out that hypothesis, but just I'm gonna throw it out there. You'll get a good a lot of quiet time. (laughs) Okay, I'm gonna give it a shot. So, what is it that makes me who I uh, successful as a podcaster? Is that what you would say? Yeah, I would just say you know yeah what what is it about that differentiates your podcast from any other podcast? Oh God, one sentence. You're right. That's a bitch. It's showing up with integrity and vulnerability to create a safe space to explore whatever it is we're getting into in the podcast. And then kind of fucked up the last part of that, but like, it's really to create a, a safe space for you as, as the guests to share openly and honestly in a way that that resonance will actually land for people versus coming up here with questions, you being the expert, you just spitting off like the canned answers. Right. Yeah. I'll listen to those podcasts too. And there's some, some value in there, some utility there. But at the end of the day, what I love about this conversation is there is, there's a frequency that goes out that, hit someone. They don't even, the beauty is they don't even know exactly what something shifts in them. And that's, I think why one of the reasons I do this. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. And I really feel that when I'm here, you know, in this space. And that that is so important because, you know, our, our words are our frequency. And so if we're, if we're talking, if we're in a place of integrity, if we're harmonized ourselves and we're, we're letting those words flow through us, that's reaching the audience and that's reaching everybody that we talk to. And that's really the beauty of Sanskrit, just to kind of digress or maybe. Yeah, maybe let's, not digress. let's go down but, that know, rabbit hole. It's, it, it's like. How long have you been studying this, by the way? You, I was listening to you on Ryan's podcast and it was like, dude, you like, you're deep into the Sanskrit. Yeah, I'm really into it. I, you know, honestly, I haven't been into it for that long. It's, it's, I have to come at it from sort of a place of humbleness and humility in that, you know, one of the things about the Vedic knowledge is that it's a, it's a you know, Abrahamic religions have a book one book, right? The Bible, the Torah, the Quran, the Vedas have a library. And so there's so much information that I'm not by no means considering myself anywhere near to a scholar in this, or do I even think in this lifetime that I would even have the possibility of doing that? Even if I dedicated the rest of my life to it, maybe if I did that, which is not what I'm going to do because I have children and life and all sorts of things that I'm interested in, but I have found it to be extremely helpful. So yeah, I met a teacher named Jeffrey Armstrong, Kavindra Rishi, and he has just downloaded to me um, all of this amazing knowledge. And um, I'm very grateful for that. And for all of the, you know, the the word is acharya, acharya. And so we have the word from that, from uh, chariot and also car, right? And so it's like the one that can carry the knowledge from generation to generation. An acharya is someone who who walks the way that they talk, right? And so I've met this amazing Acharya Jeffrey and he's given me this information and I've just felt so enriched by it that I I feel so inspired to share it. You know, the the English language is a very, very limited language, right? We have have one word that we talk about all the time, love, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, but we say, I love my dog. I love my wife. I love my child. I love my grandmother. I love pizza. I love lamp. 
right? It's like, hmm. it's like all of these different, different things that we say love to, but, um, you know, in, in, in Sanskrit, they have words for all of those different kinds of rasas or those dances, you know, the love you have with source, the love you have with your wife, the love you have for a pet. There's like descriptive words that can, that can be defined over multiple pages. And so it's like, it's such a scientific specific language and all of these, all of these syllables and all of these sounds carry frequency with them that puts us into a state of having a direct experience, right? So Sanskrit is what they call the most perfect language. And from a trading perspective, I think you're going to love this because it's basically an unchangeable language. So the same verses that were, that have been proven by a man named Nilesh Oak. So the Bhagavad Gita is something that I study. And the, the Mahabharata is, uh, the Bhagavad Gita is 701 verses. So it's quite short. It's sort of like the guidebook um, or like a map of the larger text. The Bhagavad Gita, which is an amazing book, sits inside of the Mahabharata, which is 100,000 verses. Okay, so I haven't even tried to approach that. I've been mostly focusing on, on the Bhagavad Gita. But the Mahabharata has something like 300 solar lunar references in the text about the exact positioning of the sun and the moon and the planets. And so this guy, Nilesh Oak, was able to take all of these, all of this information, put it in a computer, and through modern technology, was able to date that to about 7,500 years ago. So the way that the Sanskrit was downloaded and written down 7,500 years ago, or actually at the time was probably just memorized, but that, that, is, that is completely unchanged, unchanged to this day. And I, I'll give you the reasons why. They don't have a King James version? Well, so, you know, think about like Old English and Shakespeare, right? A couple hundred years ago, we were talking in Old English. You can't even understand that now, let alone if, if right now we went to different parts of our country. People are talking completely different ways and using words. Completely. I grew up in Maine, bro. We talk funky up there. And compare that to Texas or Alabama or California. It's, it's completely different, right? So Sanskrit, what does it have? First of all, it has this, this astrological um, references to hold it in its place and time. Okay, mm. It has specific pronunciations. So the letters of the alphabet are said in a specific way in your mouth so that you know, with this is how you say this letter and that those rules are, are held. It has over 4,000 grammatical rules in order to keep everything kind of in check. Every single word in Sanskrit reduces down to one of 2,000 etymological roots, okay? They, they conjugate four different parts of the sentence. So, you know, in Spanish, it's like yo to instead, and then, you know, the verb will be conjugated so that you can, you, you know, what, 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 tense it's in, right? Sure. In English, we don't have that at all. And Sanskrit has four different parts of the sentence. So the noun, the verb, the adjective, and the adverb are all conjugated to hold this sort of specificity. It also has, um, it's also read in the Gayatri meter, which is a, a specific type of poetry rhythm in order to make it be you know, easy to memorize. Um, and uh, you know, there, there, there's probably many more things in there. So, I, I would guess yeah. just given what you've said, holy shit. That's what I'm remembering at the moment. But the, the, the point is, is that when you're using Sanskrit words, not you have this, you, you can get this specific, specific, specificity 
about spirituality. We have like these words like God, spiritual, love. But if you ask anybody what those means, what that means, they all come up with a completely different definition of that, right? So it's completely kind of a mess and and nonspecific. So Sanskrit gave me a language to talk about and to understand these sort of spiritual concepts. And in addition, when you're saying these words in the right way, the way that they were intended and downloaded from, you know, in their purest form and unchanged over time, you're having a direct experience. And that's why when you start singing mantras, you get this joy, this ecstasy, this, what they call shanti, this contentment that just naturally emerges inside of you just from resonating with that frequency. Mm, dude, we were just in, uh, at a retreat in, at Zion National Park and we were, we were uh, able to do yoga every morning, Kundalini yoga. And I remember the last day we, we went into the session and before we went into this one Kriya, I guess is what they call it. Okay. She was like, look, these longer ones, like you just got to commit to like, you're going to do this for the rest of your life and just get it out of your head that there's going to be an end to it. And then it'll make it be, you know, kind of be more tolerable. And which was great advice because <laughs> this one was 31 minutes long, the same mantra, the same motions. And I did just feel with the exception of my thumbs being numb, <laughs> I felt there was, I was being lifted into some other energetic with just, you know, kind of that really that, that probably the energy of the, the mantra. Yeah. Well, I'd love to just riff on that for a second. So, you know, the first thing that's interesting is in this country is that we say yoga, but what we're referring to really is asana or movement practice, right? Mm. Yoga is actually a worldview. It's a, it's a philosophy of not really religion is not the right word, but a way of living a spiritual sense and a science, right? And asana, the movement practice, is one component of a much larger system. Mm. Most people, which is a great thing, um, are doing what we are doing asana practice and calling it yoga. But before you even get to the asana practice, there's what they call the yams and the niyams. And I'm not an expert in all of them, but they're basically practices that you have to do to take care of yourself, proper diet, you know, let's just call them four doctors, sleeping, moving, um, you know, eat, drinking water, you know, cleanliness, right? And then there's another step of how you are in relationship to others and to community in your relationships, you know, how you communicate, how, what kind of, um, are, you know, are you living out your dharma or your purpose? And are, are you doing it in a way that's not inflicting harm on others? They have the word ahimsa, which is incorrectly translated as nonviolence, right? And this is kind of like what kind of came with Gandhi is this whole concept of nonviolence. But, you know, my understanding of that, and this is not to knock Gandhi at all, but that it's, it's really not about never being violent. It's about doing what you have to do to protect the innocent and those you love, doing what you have to do to live dharmically or according to your purpose on this planet while having the least impact on others. It's not about actually never having any kind of harm. It's about only doing it when it's, when it's in, in the context of protecting um, the innocent, right? You know, th- this is a little bit on a sidetrack and I'll have to come back. 
to the asana, but <laughs> in the olden days, you know, Mother Earth, which uh, is uh, a deva called Durga, okay? Warriors, before they would go and kill somebody else in, in war, right? And compare, to the, compare this to like what we have going on now, like in Russia and Ukraine and all these, all these wars around, around, around the earth. But the warriors would go and, and pray, pray is not the right word either, but sing mantras to Durga, to Mother Earth, asking for her permission in order to go and kill one of her children. And basically having to prove that this, this is, has to be done because I'm protecting my community and my family and I have no other choice. And this isn't my dharma. I'm a warrior and I have to do this. And having to wait until you experience that level of congruency in your mantra and in your practice so that you can go with complete integrity, that you have the permission of, of this personified law of nature. Mm-hmm. And, you know, compare that to the way that, we, that we're acting now. So it's not about just being violent. It's about being violent when you absolutely need to. Um, but anyway, this is getting to all of these things are, are first to be done before a guru even would give you an asana practice. And then that asana practice would lead on to a breath practice, pranayama. And that breath practice would then lead to a meditation practice and a mantra practice and learning how to use your discernment or your, your booty faculty, you know, um, how to, to use the faculties of your mind to make decisions. And all of that leads up to samadhi, which it means the same as being one with, you know, one with the source and having this full-on direct experience. And so yoga is just so incredibly and so broad. And it's great that all of these people, hundreds of millions of people around the world are now doing asana practices because it's just the start. But, you know, really it's expanding out to other parts of yoga and realizing what the ultimate goal, the ultimate the goal of this movement practice is not to be more, you know, ripped. It's actually to prepare your body to do the breath work, to prepare you, do the breath work, to be able to calm your mind, you know, and sing mantras so that you have this direct experience. That's the whole point of it. It's not to just like, you know, get really sweaty and, you know. Yeah, get a good get, workout. Get a good workout in, check right? that Check that movement box off for the day. Right. And so, you know, if you think about it, because this is just getting back to your point about, when, you know, the, the, the positions of the asanas, the movement practices in, within yoga, are basically using the technology of the, of the body sort of like, like a uh, radio antenna, right? So we have cell phones that receive wireless information from the internet. The cells in our body are connected to what could be called the internet, internet, mm. right? And so when we're putting ourselves through these postures and going in different positions, we're using this wireless technology system to receive information from the cosmos and from the, and, and kind of put it in the internet. Right. And so that's, that's sort of what, what you were experiencing, I think, when you were doing that yoga. And one, one thing I, I would add to that is like mantras and yoga are, are like, it's like, to me, it's like flavors of ice cream. Okay. You don't want to get stuck into just like, okay, this is just one mantra. I'm just going to have missionary position. Yeah. For the rest of my life. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, you guys don't uh, do that? <laughs> you guys haven't fully committed to that? I'm not going to go 100% missionary, right? <laughs> like right now I want to sing to the, the divine feminine part. Now I want to, you know, sing to the part that helps me remove obstacles. And now I want to sing to the part that does this or that. And now I want to do this type of movement practice because I feel like that's what I need or I want to tap into a certain sort of 
flavor of the medicine. Mm. Well, this, this, this all for me segues back to how the fuck did you go from baller weather trader <laughs> to sitting here today, just dropping bombs about Sanskrit? Yeah. I mean, that's a fucking evolution. Well, it's funny. Cause and I- maybe start back too. also, I would love, I mean, the, the people that were in your house that you had uh, access to these titans of trading. Yeah. Like that's not to be overlooked either. No, I was certainly like extremely, you know, privileged in a lot of ways. And I, you know, I want to own up to that is that, you know, um, while I didn't have a lot of exposure to, you know, vulnerability or expressing your emotions or a spiritual practice or even how to eat, Right. Uh, I did have a lot of guidance to what was became my dream, which is to be, you know, a successful trader and be a Wall Street guy. Yeah. And, and it's funny, the eating part, they're notoriously terrible eaters, traders. And I was actually terrible. I would say the last four or five years of my trading career, I'd gotten into CrossFit and started to learn a lot about nutrition. So I was eating a lot better than yeah. basically everybody else. Yeah. But just I was look around the pit and like what they were eating is like, oh my yeah. God. Oh yeah, I've, I've seen it all too. You know, I've experienced that. So yeah, I started out my, you know, my earliest dreams in life were to be, to be, to be drum, a drummer, to drum. And, and I was interested in magic. And this gets back to like- the, What type of drumming though? Like in a, in a band or actually drumming? I had like a drum set from a very early age. Yeah. And it's like, there was nothing around me that would have inspired me to do that. My parents didn't drum. My parents weren't musical. But that and, and the same with magic. And so, you know, to me, there, there's no question that I came in with that inclination from a past life that somehow I had this desire to have these skills and talents. And, you know, as being a, a good parent, right? And, and recognizing- that these are my, the, nat, the things that I'm naturally pulled to from a young age without having any other influence. Those are the things that should be cultivated, right? And to some extent they were in my family, but it, you know, what happened was that a new dream emerged, which was to become a, a successful businessman. As I you know, watched my dad and kind of got more enculturated with all of the, the belief systems around me. And you know, from a very young age, I got exposed to all of these great experiences. My dad in, in the, you know, the late eighties and the early nineties was working at hedge funds and hedge funds were just really beginning. And it was like, I just, on a recommendation, I just picked up the book is right behind you more money than God. And I'm about three chapters in it. It's fucking fascinating. Yeah. Have you read it yet? No, I haven't. No. That'd be super interesting for yeah. you as well. Cause you actually lived that part of the world that, that I didn't. Totally. Yeah. So thank you for that. Yeah. So, it, you know, like back, back in the eighties the and the nineties, it was like, it was just so exciting because, you know, there were only a handful of hedge funds and my dad was working for one and it was a very kind of close knit community at the time. And it was just like, you know, if we thought the era that we were in was sort of like the wild west, it's like this, there were not really a lot of rules. There were very eccentric people. People were coming into a lot of money at that time in the eighties and nineties and were, you know, were, using it in very kind of creative and, you know, interesting ways. And so I just felt like the excitement and the energy of, of how much fun and, uh, you know, it was very like fraternal atmosphere. It was sort of like being on a sports team. It was just this like really great energy. So 
from the time I was about 11, 12 years old, I was like, this is what I'm going to do with my life. So, you know, Paul Tudor Jones had put out a trading video um, about uh, on a PBS special back in the late 80s. And it was very interesting because there were these rumors that later came, came out that he was actually sort of embarrassed by it because he was, you know, just a young guy and he was sort of like kind of showing off a little bit in the video. And um, I think he later had, you know, really kind of developed into more of a fine wine and more of a maturity about himself. And so there were rumors <laughs> that he had gone out and bought out, bought out every copy of the trading video. Oh, no shit. And so like, you, you know, there were periods of time where you couldn't even find it. I don't know if it exists now on the internet, but it was kind of an interesting legend about that video, but I had a copy of it, you know, VHS tape. And I played it over and over and over again in my room until the thing broke inside the machine. And, you know, I just was like, this is what I want to do. Right. I just, I just felt this, this freedom, this creativity, this competitive spirit of trading. And then I was just exposed to all of these interesting things. Like, you know, I, one day, you know, my dad comes home and tells me that, you know, Paul Tudor Jones had just bought this brand new limousine and had a bad day of trading and just gave the keys away because he thought it was bad luck. And he gave it to this guy, Mark Dalton, who was the president of the company. And the next day he's showing, you know, driving to our house to hang out with my dad and just, he drives himself in the limousine. <laughs> just like, you know, things like that. I'm like, what the hell is going on over there? Like, I want a piece of that, right? Yeah. And, you know, going back a little bit, you know, one thing that I was just say uh, is that in process work, what we study is we study somebody's first childhood dream or earliest childhood experiences that they remember. And when I was seven years old, I came home with my first report card to my mom and I was going to give it to my mom. And there was this idea that if you had a good report card, you'd get a present, you'd get rewarded. And so I walk into the room, I hand this report card to my mom and, you know, it's really, I don't really know exactly the way it went down, but my experience of it was that this report card was not good enough to get the reward. And, you know, I flipped out, I threw myself back in the air and I smashed my head on this flower pot and cracked the pot. And, you know, it, it ensues where, you know, my mom's not taking me to the hospital and like holding my head and, you know, and the story goes on and I'll try to weave that all in of how that's purposeful now in my life. But what happened is in that moment, it set up both a paradoxically a core wound that success is through appreciation coming from external sources. Yeah, as you say, something in, and in, achievement, in, or an arbiter. And yeah. achievement. But at the same time, it set up my core power, which is what drove me to, you know, be an amazing student and be, you know, go to the top of, of industry, right? So all of this time now I'm living out this myth without even knowing it of want, just getting excited by all of this achievement and all this accomplishment and realizing that that's exactly what I wanted to do. And so, you know, I was exposed to these great environments. I went down to the University of Virginia. Um, I... I totally just focused on trading. It's the only thing I cared about when I was there, um, that and partying, of course. Yeah. yeah. And then um, I left there and I quickly, you know, got a job as a weather trader, which is, was a really interesting thing. Um, you know, weather trading, I, most people probably don't understand what that is, but. Well, dude, I remember when it came, you know, I was at the CME and I remember them talking about weather futures coming on. I'm like, what? What? Yeah. Like I understood it because of the crops and all that, but I'm like, how the fuck do you even trade that? Yeah. Well, just like, you know, we don't have to go too far into this, but the idea that, you know, you, you can look at, you know, on a future basis, right on a futures contract, like right now we're sitting here in May. So let's say we're, we're talking about June Austin weather. There's an average temperature 
that June Austin weather is. Maybe the, you know, it's pretty hot here. Maybe the average high is like 95 degrees or something in June. And let's say the average low is 75. And so they have this idea of like an 85 degree we use as reference, you know, and you can look back, say the last 10 years, 30 years, 50 years, you know, there's a lot of historical data on Austin weather. And so, you know, the June futures contract without any information, let's say would be trading at 85 degrees. But for some reason, if I think it's going to be warmer than that, based on, let's say my meteorologist, who was my partner's prediction, I might buy 85 degrees Fahrenheit for a certain amount of dollars per degree. And then if it comes in at 86, I'm getting paid just like if you buy anything and it goes up or down. Right. But then there's all these sort of secondary influences of weather that we got into. Like, for example, weather influences all the energy products, right? If it's really cold in the winter in New York, we're drawing on so much more energy than if it was warm. Um, you know, the same thing with heating oil or even crude oil to, to some extent. You know, the same thing goes with all the crops, all of the CME crops, right? So, you know, corn, soybeans, wheat, all of the other little things um, that come off of the different variations of that. Also, like cocoa, sugar, coffee, orange juice. So this was almost like a missing link to all these other commodities in their price right. action. Yeah. So what we would do is we sort of had this like this almost like a Rolodex of events and time. So we knew at particular times of the year when the, the weather sensitivity was the highest to these various products. So for example, you know, in the Midwest in July, when we're having all of this terrible monocropped 200 million acres of GMO corn and soybeans, unfortunately being grown, that's re really r ruining all of uh, our soils and probably going to cause a serious famine if it hasn't already. But th these, you know, obviously when you're trading, you're not thinking about that, but you know, all these Especially if you're not as down with Sanskrit as you are right, right. now. Well, so these 200 million acres of, of corn, wheat, and soybeans, they're highly susceptible to weather. And so in July, depending on if it's too hot or if it's not hot enough or if there's too much rain or not enough rain, all of these factors uh, impact the output of how much yield there is, right? And it's just simple economics of supply and demand. You know what the demand's going to be, and we're focusing on the supply in, the, in that situation. Mm. You know, if we're looking at energy, um, the supply is more known, but the demand isn't based on how cold or warm it is in, you know, in the winter or how warm or cold it is in the summer. So what you do as a weather trader is at least as what we did is we kind of just rolled around the world from Northern hemisphere to Southern hemisphere as the seasons are changing. And as these various crops are going through their stages of planting to, you know, germination, whatever, you know, all the way to harvest and knowing what times the, the weather is sensitive to those products. And then looking for, for, for arbitrations or like looking for opportunities based on what is being priced in, in terms of, are people really leaning to the warm side and we think it's a good, you know, better propensity to go colder, for example, and then putting on the correct play. Well, tell me this, does, does the weather pattern in, let's say Bali right now, maybe that's not a great example, but maybe something that's a little closer to further, closer, whatever. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Does that inform, like if there's a, a blip in the radar there, 100%. That, that informs 100%. what's going to be happening to, to our crops here. It, it's a great, it's a great um, hologram. If you, you know, it's, it's a great metaphor for, for life because, you know, we're all breathing the same air. You know, we all have access, we all share the same oceans, right? 
we all, for the most part, are sharing the same food. We, you know, we are one organism. You know, it doesn't matter how many lines we put on a piece of paper, right? Yeah. To split it all up into, you know, countries, states, counties, towns, you know, developments, et cetera. But it's all one, right? So, the, you know, it, it, we experience in New York, you know, cloudy skies from forest fires in California, you know, three days before, right? And all of a sudden I can't watch the sunset because the clouds gray, uh, you know, the sky's gray. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? And then I'm realizing this is from, you know, a big fire 3000 miles away in California. Right. So we're all one system, but just in terms of, in, in terms of weather, what we do is we look at, you know, historical weather patterns, we call them analogs, look at what, what the position of the jet stream and, and various things that were going on in, in, in past years. You know, one of the biggest influences is ocean temperatures. Ocean temperatures, you know, going up and down have a huge um, correlation to the, the temperature in, in various parts of the world. And, you know, the same kinds of things that are happening is you see a setup in the jet stream that sets up cold, you know, in this part of the, of the world in China. And, you know, that correlates to something that may happen in southeastern United States. And you just basically go back and a meteorologist, a good meteorologist would study the history and say, okay, this particular pattern right now looks like 1946, you know, 1972, 1999. Okay, well, four out of five times it was cold with an average of, you know, three degrees below normal. And, you know, the one time, one outlier was only one degree above. Okay, so our risk reward is pretty good to bet on this based on this particular global setup right now. And this is what might come over the next two to four weeks based on what happened over the two to four weeks previously. Dude, this is such a different type of trading than, I mean, I was in the pit, you know, interest rate options, you're looking at some macro stuff, but ultimately it's, we weren't taking the long-term bet. We weren't looking at stuff and analyzing charts and certainly, But that's all okay. Cause everyone needs to know what their, what their one sentence. Yo, yeah, no. And that's, that's what's so fascinating for me that yes, we're traders, but we're, we're two different, completely different yeah. systems within that. So it's fascinating to... Well, there's a huge continuum, right? Of, of traders from computers to humans. And then, you know, along that, that continuum, there's, you know, a million different variations of what people are doing and, mm. and how they look at the world and how they make money. You know, some of my, um, some of the people that I was trading against, you know, for example, I might be buying... Austin, Texas, because I think it's going to be warm just based off the speculative uh, opinion. But there might be an energy producer that is going the other way because they need to hedge their exposure to, to their customers or, you know, a farmer that wants to lock in a particular price on their crop and, you know, doesn't, isn't willing to take the risk of the price going down and, and is willing to give up the upside, right? So there's a million different ways, even within markets that people are looking at them. And then of course, um, across markets are you know, across the full spectrum of trading, there's just like really an unlimited sort of strata of, of variations and ways to cut it up. You know, one of the interesting things about what you said though, about this, this global weather pattern that I had an epiphany at the the very end of my trading before I retired. And I can tell a little little bit more about that progression, but just to tell this interesting story, we were looking at uh, an analog, I believe in 2016, November, and we were looking at that, expecting that it was going to be 2016 November was a very warm month in the United States. And we were predicting that it was going to be, you know, we were having an inclination that it was going to be a big reversal to a cold December. Right. And one of the things that um, we were noticing was that this December, I think 1963 to the previous November of that same year 
was the same, like an exact pattern. And what I had realized at that time was that time in 63 in November was when Kennedy was shot. And the November of 16 was when Trump was elected. And I realized that it was a very interesting thing. And that not only did the weather pattern look the same, but what if the intensity of the event globally of like a Kennedy being shot was enough to shift the weather pattern back to its other extreme? And what if the, the time that Trump being elected could have this like almost emotional response where the weather system itself was interacting with the humans on the planet, right? In that way, and then make it go colder. And in fact, it did. It worked out to be a very extremely cold um, December. And it was a little bit late in my career, so it didn't really have that big of an impact on me. But it was more about figuring that out and seeing that relationship that was even more special than walking away with any amount of money from that, yeah. uh, that idea, right? That's incredible. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's so whole- yeah, they say a butterfly flaps its wings and like, you know, it affects the whole world, right? Yeah. It's, it's one system. We're all in this together. Mm. How did, how did, how did you wake up from all of this? I yeah. know part of it is your journey from 330 down to 165. Yeah. So I was trading along, you know, I was doing really well and um, I just couldn't get my, my act together and my weight, you know, I had been struggling with it and over the, over the four years before I went to tutor from when I graduated to when I was at tutor, I was just focusing completely on work and it was surrounded in a very stressful environment. And it was like, my whole life was invested in making money. And, you know, like, you know, like there's an, there's an attitude of we'll bring food to you. So you don't even get up off the trading floor because it's too important that you don't miss a trade. Yes. But they're bringing in like the absolute crappiest food, right? You know, the cheapest, not really kind of the cheapest, but just like, you know, the catering of the crap, and so then you're never even getting up and you're working all the time and the markets never close. You know, they're, they're, they, they close for a few hours and then they're back open by like six, seven o'clock at night. And really the only, t- they open up Sunday nights. The only time they really close is Saturday, right? So it's like this like full on stress experience from you know morning, noon and night. You wake up in the morning and you're looking at your phone before you're getting out of bed and you're seeing, oh shit, I'm down $20 million. I haven't even showered yet. You know, what, yeah. is, what is that momentum for your day? Or the other thing, I'm up $20 million and like, woohoo, this is the greatest day ever. But it's all like this huge adrenaline rush and this huge reliance on this external thing for whether or not you're going to be up or you're going to be down. Right. And so, you know, I was, I, I reached a point in 2007 or 2000, about 2007, where I was 330 pounds. I was, doing- when did you start trading? I just want to give people some context. Well, like, you know, I, I had really thought about it solely when I was a young teenager. You know, I, when I went to college, I had internships and then I really focused on it in college. And um, yeah, 2002, when I was 21, 22, graduating from college, I got my first job as an assistant weather trader. Okay. And then you joined... This uh, was Tudor. I joined Tudor, you know, four years later in 2006. And this is like probably one year into Tudor. Mm-hmm. And I'm just in a really bad place. You know, I got this leg infection, wound, wound up in the hospital where I don't even know how I got it, but all of a sudden my legs started turning purple. Fuck. I was like super overweight. I was just like sweaty wherever I went, you know, just like really tough. Can't, couldn't find clothes that could fit. Just super uncomfortable, you know, just like the worst feeling. And um, yeah, so I had this sort of moment where I'm like, I got to get my shit together. 
And so I started exercising. I met this trainer named Chaba, who's this Hungarian kind of Russian mentality of really like a CrossFit mentality of like no pain, no gain, you know, get, get into the, get into the gym before work, after work, seven days a week, you know, no stretching, no warm up, just go. Hungarians are, don't fuck with them. They're intense. They get shit done. And you know, to his, um, to his uh, defense is I, I, I kind of, a lot of ways really, there's not a lot of ways to get 170 pounds off, but by just, you know, busting ass. Oh, for sure. But so, you know, I got to the point where I lost 170 and that was 160 ish pounds. And it took about a year and a half to two years to get all the way down there. And I did it just from pure exercise and starting to change my diet and starting to change my lifestyle a little bit, you know, not going out and drinking as much and kind of getting more sleep and all the things that started to emerge. And I got to a point where I thought I was a total stud. And we sent this video to Paul Check because Chaba had known about Paul um, and had taken a course or two with him and they had spent some time together previously. So we sent Paul this video and says, look at this fucking stud. You know, he just lost 170 pounds. Look at him doing these squats and this and that. And Paul wrote back and goes, this guy went from soggy white bread to a burnt piece of toast. He needs to take two years off from exercising. And when I remember when I received that, like I almost had a panic attack, you know, because I had realized that my whole life now was exercise. You're so and the same, to that the guy. same way, the same way that I had focused on trading and that, that excessive lifestyle of partying to the nth degree, you know, always having to spend the most money, having the biggest crew riding around in this, you know, crazy limousine, you know, and doing all the, the wildest stuff to the same degree that I now stopped that. I just transferred that same intensity into exercise. Oh brother, that's been my journey, the intensity. And that's as I was doing my, my working in and really cultivating that. I remember Peyton at one point was so frustrated with me. I'm like, why the fuck? Like I'm doing all the things I'm, I'm trying to you know, create a softer, better version of me for everybody. And she's like, yeah, but the intensity, like you're fucking hard to be around. It's yeah. not that Zen dude. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Totally. So I, I basically, what I, what I would say was I had just transferred my addiction to something more socially acceptable. Uh-huh. Now people could look at me and not be disgusted. You know, now people can look, you know, would applaud me for what I had done, but I realized that I just transferred this addiction. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's when my inner journey really started to come in. This is around 2008 or 2009. I met a great meditation teacher that was perfect for me at the time. I started practicing Tai Chi with a wonderful master, William C. Chen in New York city, who I still study with. And I have a, just a love affair with him. This 85 year old Tai Chi master that has just been such a incredible influence in my life. And then that ultimately led to my first visit to visit, uh, to see Paul check in, uh, around 2010 in his house in, um, Vista, California. And that's when I had my first shamanic experience. And that just blew me open to all of these different new possibilities and all of these things that were secondary to my way of being and really changed me. Um, that started just this deep thirst quest for finding out who I am, working with the best people, the best teachers, the best masters, studying myself, studying with, with the, the sort of this same kind of way that I attack trading. But now it's like 
more towards a purposeful goal that's really helping me heal. And I was starting to ask big questions like, who am I? Who am I really? You know, what, why am I here? What am I doing? The you curiosity know? like leads to that inquiry, curiosity right? Curiosity led and- to it. And it was just like, I couldn't get enough. And I just would study and practice and started really living this. And I became what I would call a Zen trader, right? So all of a sudden I just, we had these rows of desks and I had them cut my desk out, literally cut it out and put in the first standing desk. What may have been one of the first standing desks on Wall Street. And, you know, everybody was looking at me like, who the hell is this guy? He's everyone, you know, everyone's sitting all day and there's one guy standing, right? And I lower it down and go in a Swiss ball. And then I had this thing where I could, this cushion I could kneel on. And then I'd sit in a chair and then I'd stand and then I'd stand with like a split stance. And I do all of these things all day to, and, you know, I, of course I was doing them for my own health, but I also started to realize that by incorporating these things, I was a much more optimized trader. And so it started to improve my performance. Did but, anybody decide to cut their desk out? Well, yeah, we'll get there. So then I start bringing, <laughs> then I start bringing, Settle down, chief. <laughs> Let me tell my goddamn story. No, it's, it's good. It's good. But the answer is yes, but it took a, it took a long time. Yeah. But, you know, I started incorporating organic food, bringing my own food to work. I started, you know, exercising at work, meditating at work. Um, I started to bring my own water and kind of learn about feng shui and set up, you know, move myself off the trading floor into a private office with plants and with exercise equipment and a massage chair and, you know, even like, you know, foosball, you know, just to like keep it fun with my partner. You know, I started understanding about the impacts of EMF and I started shielding my office and realizing that they had all these repeaters up in the ceiling and pulled them out and all these different kinds of things and sort of creating this sort of healthier way of being. You see, like, I don't think that business and health need to be separated, right? There's this idea that we can be dharmic and be successful. We can do the right things, not only for ourselves but for the world. We can be beautiful and bountiful, you know, but that's so separated. And so I started to realize that not only did these things make me healthier and did I enjoy them, but they actually made me a better trader. And that went on for years. And that really did ultimately, to answer your question, have an effect on others. It took a long time. But then about four or five years after I put my standing desk in, they redid the entire trading floor and put in 400 standing desks. 400. Yeah. And they started, they start bringing in better quality food into the cafeteria and they start becoming more mindful about the little things and, and, you know, creating a space for meditation and creating a space for yoga and things like that and starting to realize it. So that's what Paul would call the silent lover where, you know, I didn't, wasn't sitting in a board meeting where I was like, okay, now we're going to do X, Y, Z, but just based on living that and people witnessing it over time, that the, 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 the energy of that led into them. So this all led for me until about 2017 when 2017 ish, where my first wife went through a major extreme state. Um, after having our second child, I think with some serious postpartum depression, which is really um, something that's tragically overlooked. I think we need to do a lot more research and a lot more support of our women after birth because, you know, we so quickly just put them back into the environment of supporting us or going back to work without understanding that, like, it really takes, it seems, about two years for a woman after birth to really stabilize back to who she was before that experience started. And so my first wife, 
you know, went through a really tragic, extreme state where she was really not centered in reality. And it was just an incredibly hard time for me. You know, I had a one and a two-year-old girl. I was managing a billion-dollar portfolio at Tudor. And I had my wife going through an extreme state. And so I was holding on for dear life, right? And that ended up in a really uh, messy divorce that we went through, which, you know, turned out to be a beautiful thing and that we have a great relationship now. Our kids are doing great. I have a new wife and a new son and, you know, I wouldn't change anything, but it was a very, very difficult time. So, you know, I left that situation with majority custody of my, my girls that were now two years old and three years old. And I just had to ask myself and be real, like, am I going to, going to be awarded I wouldn't say win, but am I going to be awarded majority custody and then spend my days at the office trying to make money in Stanford, Connecticut, while my girls are upstate in New York and I'm having somebody else drive them to school and then not being with their mother? You know, so I had to really face that and say, wow. like, I just can't, I just cannot be an in integrity and do that. And so all of the signs, you know, were, were, were leading towards leaving. I started, honestly, my performance wasn't that good. I was obviously really distracted from all those things. Um, and all of the other ideas that had been growing into this, this Zen traderhood, I realized like they actually paradoxically also led me away from trading because I started to realize that there was so much more to me than just this one, this one industry, right? This one flavor of me. I, you know, I so much more, I wanted to spend time meditating. I wanted to spend time um, doing Tai Chi and to a, a lot of extent that helps you with the trading. But when you start to make that the priority, yeah. you know, and that you want that to be your life and trading secondary, well, that's a good way to get your ass kicked, right? Yeah. And so I have too much respect for trading to, to try to think that I could do it with one eye on the ball, you know? And so all of that led to 2019 of just me walking away from that industry and, and retiring and saying, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I know that there's more for me out in the world. And I want to see if I could, you know, test myself in a new way and uh, do something different. And that's kind of what I've been working on for the last three years. And did, did people, what was the, the kind of overall response? Like, dude, you're fucking crazy. You're still killing it. You've got this great job, but like, what were the things? Pretty much. Or were you, were, did you get a lot of support? Yeah, I think, you know, I think I was well supported, but you know, there's, a, there's all these voices who think like you have the greatest job in the world. You know, you're a partner, a tutor, like you're going to walk away from this. Like, why not do five more years? Why not do this? You know, um, and even the voices inside myself, based on the voices of history, you know, mm -hmm. and, and all of my enculturation, all of these critics. What about your dad? Well, I think my dad was, was, was supportive. He's always been supportive of me. Um, I think he was probably, if I'm being honest, a little bit. I'd expect nothing less, a but honestly. A little bit concerned, you know, he, he probably, you know, asking himself like, you know, why don't you just do a few more years, you know, just a few more, few more paychecks. Um, that's by the way, totally fair, especially totally given like totally normal. My son's going from, you know, being the top of this game and going to go meditate. What? Yeah. yeah so what? You know, there's definitely that. And then, you know, when you leave the industry, I'm sure you experience with this, there's like a cycle of experiences we go through because we go through this own disbelief, regret, shock, like, I did what, you know, like I'm just driving my kids back and forth to school now and have nothing else. The phone's not ringing. The emails aren't going off. Like, who am I? What's my purpose? Why did I just leave this important position mm. to just do, you know, to do nothing. Right. And so 
you know, I had to go through all these cycles myself until I realized that the skill set that I had gathered in trading, those same skill sets, for example, of following your process, this is going back to what we were talking about. After the competitive edge, the next and most important thing about trading was having a process. What is the process by which I go about doing this competitive edge? And then it's being a disciple of that process, studying that process, and constantly through feedback, reinventing that process and change, being willing to adapt and change that process. And I realized that's the same thing that was happening to me now as becoming a therapist, becoming a process worker or a life process coach. It's like, I am watching my clients. First of all, before you even get into the clients, this idea of hunting and stalking your own process, right? I know you, uh, you had a podcast with, with a gentleman who was down in an African hunter. Boyd? Yeah. 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 Uh, he was a lion tracker, not a lion hunter. tracker. Okay. Yeah. So I, I spent time in a, in a, in a tribe in Namibia where I did a persistence hunt mm. where you, I lived with a, with, with a Kalahari Bushman for two weeks and we, we hunted animals by running them down. And this was one of the, <laughs> the most incredible experiences of my life. But I realized like the same sense of stalking the prey of tracking of, of pacing, right? These are the same skills that were important to trading. How do I pace the market? How do I stalk the market? How do I look for that right opportunity? How do I know exactly when to pull the arrow and hit the bullseye, right? And then I realized, wow, those are the same skill sets that I've learned that are inherent in coaching. How do I stalk my client? How do I pace my client? How do I look for that right opportunity to make an intervention at the right moment mm. in, the, in the right way, the right feeling with the right intention, right? At the, the first time, they call that in Hawaiian culture, they call that kino ole. It's like doing it the right way, the right feeling for the right person, the right place, the right time, the first time. Kino oh, ole, wow. right? And so like what I realize is, and I'll just say one more thing, the real thing too in, in becoming wanting to become sort of like a wisdom teacher or, or, or a coach of some side is of some sort is working on yourself. And so you have to be a hunter warrior of your own process. How do I do a recapitulation? How do I do with detachment, look at my life's events and think about how they've shaped me. What are my preconceived ideas about how life should be or how I might react to a certain situation with complete detachment, do a life review and stalk yourself so that you can be then in, in, the, in, you know, bring that level of frequency and that level of awareness to everything you do and to your clients. And so when I realized that the same skill set I had learned was not like I was giving it away, but the essence of that carried forward with me to whatever I do, then I sort of got over all of those feelings of, of grief, disbelief, anger, woulda, coulda, shoulda mentality. Cause I realized I wasn't really giving it up. It just sort of changed forms. Yeah. Wow. And so I'm curious, cause we, you know, we each, both of us and, and anyone listening, we have our own kind of way that looks. So this is like your coaching is through a life process coach. Is that what they say that, right? Yeah. My coaching feels like, um, through the podcast and as I was saying earlier, it's like sending out the resonance for people, 
not telling them what to do, not saying follow me, but does something here land for you? Is there something in this process of our experience that shifts something in you so that you go have your own experience and just don't take my word for it or your word for it. But what, you know, that's what I, I think aim to do with this podcast is coach in that way. Yeah. It's, it's different structure, not just from, you know, I'm not getting paid for this, but it's also, you should be. Well, thank you. But it's also, um, you know, an old paradigm of like telling the coach tells the, the client what to do. And I found that even when I have worked with people one-on-one, it's been much more, I just keep seeing myself reflected back in the conversation. Like, what do I need in this moment? And start to share that. And then more often than not, there's the, the aha moment where the client gets to actually feel and have their own, they kind of come to their own awareness around it. And they're not just taking my word for it. That's, you said a lot of amazing things. So the first thing is that, you know, we all, we each have our own facilitator or coaching style. Okay. And so knowing your, your style is just like that one sentence of knowing your competitive edge, knowing what, what is your primary style as a coach, but also that there are secondary aspects that we're not that in touch with. Like you might be like very direct as a coach, let's just say, and that's really good, but there might be the secondary, like more vulnerable style that you might need to sometimes call in. But knowing our style and, and what makes us a good coach and being authentic to that is the same thing as knowing your competitive edge in trading, right? And so what you said, though, about this, what I would say is about curiosity is the way that you, the way that you engage with your client was not really by telling them what to do, but by drawing it out of them. And that's called a meta skill, which is like an overarching feeling quality of the way that you connect. And so in this sense, it could be called curiosity. You know, in Native American culture, they would call that a good attitude, the good attitudes. It's like the way in which through you coach or you in, engage in somebody is like, you know, playfulness, curiosity, inquiry, right? Mm. Letting, not giving them the answer, but leading them to it, right? And that's the same thing in process work is that it's so much more effective when you can help somebody get to the answer themselves and you may already see it, but actually being patient enough to lead them there through their own process to get to that sort of that nugget. And the last thing I will say is that I, in my experience, the, the clients that come to us for whatever they're working on is the same medicine that we need in some yeah. other part of our life. We might be a few steps ahead of them in, in the forest or on the trail, but in, in reality, you know, if somebody comes in and it's, they're having problems with boundaries, well, the first question I need to ask myself is where am I at with boundaries? And to, to the degree that I am boundaryless, you know, walled off or boundaryless, um, as Terry Real would talk about some of the qualities of the way people are in relationships, I can't help my client, right? And so I've had all of these different kinds of experiences is in that we're, we're in, a, in a shared field. We're sitting in what they call in process work, the process mind, sort of like maybe the mind of God, you would say. And there's a relational field and exchange that's going on between the client and the therapist. And both of them are experiencing and teaching and learning through this feedback loop. 
And that's a really important thing. It's not like as therapists, we have it all figured out. Okay, I'm going to sit here. I'm the coach. I'm going to wear something. You're going to sit, you're going to lie on the couch and I'm going to sit here in the chair. The reality is, is I'm just a, a part of this process as you are. We're both here on, on, a, on a learning journey together. And let's incorporate also the larger field, the space between us and what's going on inside of you to, to, to bring all of that in. What I dreamt last night is relevant for our session today, you know, and vice versa. Yeah. And I, I, I love that. And I, it, again, I just keep thinking to this as I'm sharing with someone or holding or working with a client, it, it's, I'm working it out with my voice so that I hear it's literally a conversation with myself about where I'm not having boundaries right now. And I start to get to explore that. It, it, it be, the coaching sessions for me became, and just like the podcast, the topics that come up, okay, where in my life am I not feeling free in this area? Because there's got to be some part of it that is a little bit locked up. It could be a tiny bit. It could be completely, you know, boundaryless. But whatever it is, it, 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 it makes me consider right now, this moment in time where I sit. Because a lot of times we just go through life and we're doing our thing and we're in a flow or whatever, but we're not considering something that's in the shadow, a blind spot that is actually hindering us from, you know, kind of being further down that path. Totally. And relationships of all kinds are the greatest way to reflect that back to ourselves. And so, you know, what we, what we dislike in the other is usually what we need to look at inside of ourselves, you know? Um, and that's essentially, you know, process work in, in, in its essence. And so when an, an interesting thing that can happen too, as a, as a coach with a client is that, you know, we're in this feedback loop. And so you may be experiencing something inside of yourself that your client is dreaming up inside of you. Maybe all of a sudden you're, you're a really kind person and you never really get angry. And all of a sudden you're with a client and you're realizing like, I'm just really angry at this guy. I want to scream at him. And then you have the awareness to notice that that's happening and to realize, okay, that's coming onto my screen. That's not actually me. This person might have trauma from having um, a really strict father that used to scream at him and tell him what to do and never, he could never think for himself and he was always living in fear. And he's projecting that through me to reflect back to him so that he can actually meet that in this moment and then heal. And so when you have that awareness as a coach, you can, set, you can sort of step out of the role and say, huh, you know, I don't really feel this way, but I'm noticing in myself this urge to sort of scream at you. So I'm going to take this puppet or I'm going to stand over here and I'm going to play out this role. No shit. And I'm going to start talking to you and engaging in that. So, you know, the point is that it's like the relationship is so fluid that someone has to really track and pace and stalk themselves to know, have first have this idea of like, what is me and what, what am I centered in and what is actually now being dreamt up through me for the benefit of the client? <laughs> because if, because if I'm not, careful, I'll, I'll abuse, I'll, I'll re-trigger and re-traumatize the client because that anger will just go boom. And all of a sudden they're being triggered like their father. And the pattern again, the it's pattern so, so in. interesting. That and then I'm just adding on. That happened with me, with a, a buddy, a close buddy, maybe a year ago. We were talking about crypto and stuff was moving and, and I'd kind of given him feedback about how I trade and da, 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 da. So I kind of was kind of 
repeating the same stuff and call me again a different time. And it was like the same thing. And I, and I finally was kind of belittled him a little bit and was sarcastic. And I was like, fuck dude, like, come on, man. I, like, and so I said it differently. And he told me afterwards that it triggered him that how his, this dad energy. Right. Yeah. And it was like, so you may, oh, have, you, you know, it's, fuck. You may have been dreamt up by him. Yeah. In that moment. And he said it was really good to, cause, cause what happened. Okay. Which just didn't happen in his real life was we got to interact with that. And I got to share that energy that came up in me where it came from. And I got to own that and then almost like reparent him in that moment. And so I think about like kind of unconsciously doing this, but what rolled out of it was him potentially having this healing experience with that authority. Well, what if, what if everything in our life from our body symptoms to our relationships, to our fantasies, our flirts, our dreams, the, the chance encounters, the bird that flies by. What if all of those things were there to awaken, awaken us to our fullest potential? What if, you know, the people that we call disturbers or enemies or the people that trigger us, you know, um, what if they're all here as allies, you know, and our own psyche is dreaming them up just like you got dreamt up to sort of belittle the, the, the friend in the way of his parent. What if all of life is, is being dreamt up to awaken us to our fullest potential and our f- true purpose here on earth? Well, if that were the case, how does someone tune into that? Well, you know, I think just through awareness, right? I mean, you can, you can be the one that belittles the friend and not take away anything from that. Or you could look at that experience and, and spend time analyzing it and recognize that that actually wasn't you in that moment and, you know, have that level of awareness. It's, it's a deep level of sensitivity and awareness that one develops where they start to look at everything in their life in a purposeful way. Mm-hmm. Making the, the mundane beautiful. Yeah. I mean, there's, 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 there's many different exercises we could do, but I mean, the idea that even like, a song that pops into your head or something in this room that's flirting with you, an inanimate object. All of that is part of the dreaming process that's calling you to your full potential. That's waking you up to these secondary parts of yourself, to the parts of yourself that need to be healed, the parts of yourself that you've marginalized to give you access to your truest potential. And relationships are the easiest way, you know? Yeah. Okay, Rumi. Even the the timing of that bark. That's not even that is not a coincidence, right? Yeah. The time that he barked in in this conversation and what we're talking about and just showing the 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 you know, we need to if I'm looking at that metaphorically, I'm like sp- speaking with that level of authority about this, you know. I need to maybe I have an edge to really barking that out to the world. Ooh. Right? And so it's like everything that's happening is meaningful, even a dog barking in the middle of a podcast, which for a moment can seem like a disturbance. Sure. You know, my kids sometimes run into my office when I'm with my clients and there's like this part of me that wants to be like, get out of here. Don't you know I'm doing therapy? But then there's this part of me that realizes that 
they're reminding me in that moment to be more playful and be more curious and to have a child's mind with my client, or maybe my client needs it. It's all happening. You just have to wake up and pay attention to all of these little nuances. You know, most people, one of the biggest problems that people have is not believing that life is purposeful. Yeah. You know, like that all of everything that's happening to us is just chance, chance coincidence, but everything is, has a meaning and a richness and a purposefulness to it. There are purposeful laws of nature that are moving through us and around us. And, you know, waking up to that is not only, you know, helps you as a anything, you know, as a human, as an optimized professional, but it makes life so much more fun and rich because all of those things around you now become symbols and symbols have a transcendent function where they point to something else, like multidimensionally, you know, a stop sign stops you right there. But like the Tai Chi symbol or, you know, some of the art you have around this room, that's amazing. That leads you to somewhere else, to a different dimension. If you open up the red book behind you and you you look up at one of Jung's mandalas, those are symbols that lead you to another experience. They don't stop you right there. They transcend you somewhere else. And so when you realize that, you know, the world is a symbol. The world is being dreamt up and we're part of the stream and everything has multidimensionality and multiple levels of meaning and purposefulness instead of just like this mechanical model. You start to really live. Okay, so let's get practical. Here we are, I think for the most part, I'll speak for myself, I I live in a way that feels really good. I feel like I'm doing what I'm meant to be doing. Some version of it. Arguably, there's someone, several people maybe listening right now who aren't feeling that. So what practices would you recommend for them to start to see the symbols, to see the dog barking, to see that candle that's flickering? Like, how do they start to tune into these things and see that they're happening for them? Yeah. Well, what's coming to me is taking the longest journey you'll ever have to take, which is from your mind to your heart, right? And so when you were trading and, you know, things were good, you know, I'm imagining a part of your heart wasn't really feeling fulfilled like mine wasn't. You know, there was a time when maybe it was, but it got to a point where, you know, I was really listening to my mind. I was really focusing on, okay, I'm going to make this amount of money and then I'll have this much of safety and security. But I'm really marginalizing the feelings of my heart. And your heart is so much more powerful than your mind. Heart math, you know, explains this beautifully. But this idea that they put people in experiments with sensors hooked up to them and they flash on a screen pictures of beautiful images or pictures of like kind of negative images, right? So that it might be like a mother holding a baby and then it'll be a picture of like a car wreck or something like that, for example. And what it shows is something like five or seven seconds before the person can visually see the, the image, the heart will pick up on the information and the, the person's like heart rate or, you know, blood pressure will rise and things like that before the image what? is even flipped over. I've heard this yeah. fascinating. Every time I hear it, I'm like, what? So like our heart and our gut, like, you know, our gut instinct and our hearts, you know, the, 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 the feeling of joy and bliss and ecstasy and contentment that can arise in your heart 
there's a quality to that when you're singing your song. You know, when you're singing the song that the universe that you came here in a purposeful way to sing your unique song. When you're coming from your core, your core courage, the root word of courage is core, means coming from your heart, you know, being who you are, showing up and being present, being your authentic self. You know, that's all you have to do is be what you want to do. Follow what, what brings you the most joy. You know, what do you want to get out of bed and do that it's not work for you? It's a labor of love, maybe. You know, and so many people like so, so many people do not feel this, right? You and I went through periods of it. I'd say, Actually, recently I was going through another spell of it and, and I course corrected and I feel more in alignment. But what do we, what do we have to offer for people who have no idea what you're talking about? And they're just like, what? Like, I don't know. I don't have time to figure out what gets me out of bed in the morning because I need to go to work, do this job that I don't love to be in this relationship that I don't love. And so on and so forth. We know that story, but like what? Well, one, one thing you can do just out of the gate is have a conversation with that part of yourself, right? Because already there, there's a split. You're saying, I don't like this relationship. I don't like this job, but I have to do it. Well, okay. Well, you know, maybe, maybe talk it out. Try to learn from that side. And like, what, what is that really, is that your voice? Or is that the voice of your parents? Is that the voice of society? Is that the vo voice of the American dream? Or, you know, the, the voice of your religion? And, you know, it, real freedom is tough stuff. You know, mm. Osho says it's the most dangerous thing because, you know, most of society is set up to protect us from that experience. Carl Jung says the purpose of religion is to protect us from having the direct experience of God. Because having a direct experience and realizing that you're it and what you do matters, that's a lot of responsibility. So, you know, we have to kind of move from this childish mentality of doing what everyone tells us to do to become a real adult. And that doesn't matter what age you are, right? There are 70 year old children walking around. Most of them are. Yes. Um, and the, the most important thing to do is to get still and to go within and realizing that the same technology and the same information you're looking for outside of yourself exists inside of yourself and it's authentic to you, right? So just taking a few minutes to be silent and to get, have a relationship with your soul and realizing it's, it's a shift of a vantage point because we identify so much with our physical body. They, we call that in Sanskrit, it's called ahamkara. It's actually the most subtle, it's the last layer of our being. We have like our senses, you know, the elements, the elements and our senses. Then we have this feeling, memory, willing, um, thinking faculties. And then this subtlest layer that we don't even know, it's just like kind of fairy dust over us, hmm. is this, this illusion that we are this body, right? But who's the one that's talking now through this, right? What, what is the one that perceives the world in this body that has been there since I was born till now, while this body is changing, while my cells are changing, you know, every seven days? You know, the same body that I had now is not going to be the same body at all in seven years or, or some point of time. And so it's getting this identification, changing this vantage point to identifying with yourself as the soul. This is a body that I live in. This is my chariot. This is my car, right? And, you know, on, on that context, it's like this whole idea, 
the idea of racism is so abs- absurd because if we realize that this body is just a vehicle for us, just like our car going, you know, I don't look at your car and say, oh, that's a black car or that's a white car. I'm, I don't like that one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's all this is. Skin color is just, it's a, a painting of our vehicle, of the car that we're sitting in. So it's like switching to this identification of who we really are. Right. And knowing that truly taking a few minutes to get still and to talk to that part of herself, learn the signature of what that part of herself, how it communicates with us. What does that feel like? when I get a yes from inside or a no from inside and, and, and then accessing and following what brings you that sense of integrity and that sense of uh, wholeness and, and joy and bliss that only can emanate from your heart when you know you're doing the things that you're meant to be doing. That's it. Okay. That's, I was searching for a nugget in there and that that's the thing for that. I would, I would love to explore is, is who like, it is. It's like taking a few minutes to get in touch with that soul. Do you have, again, do you have like, who were your guides in this? Yeah. What were the things that really helped you? Cause I know part of the, the thing that helped, helped me, I think was some of Ram Dass's work, whether it's his book being Ram Dass, which was kind of postmortem, but there was also a five hour audible um, series that was so good it was becoming nobody, I believe. Yeah, it was great. Okay, right? Yeah. I listened to it several times and it just helped me land into getting in touch with my soul. So right. I would love just yeah. to give people, this is this is the juicy thing because it's like we were saying before, it's like the I, I we all, like you got to take care of the I. And in this, I think if you become, if you start to develop a relationship with the soul, everything else just starts to unfold. Yeah. And, and, you know, in English, we don't have the right words because relationship with the soul is not actually correct because it's like recognizing that what I am is that, right. You know, and so that and yoga, it's, it's a tricky thing because we could say like talking to our soul, but then it's like, who, who, who's doing the talking, (laughs) right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, but uh, the one who taught me about that first was Paul check. And so Paul has a, you know, he has a system actually of teaching people how to connect with the soul, their soul. And he's, you know, incredible at it, in my opinion. And it starts very simply. It starts by just closing your eyes and tuning in with yourself and asking yourself, dear soul, please show me what a yes looks like and feels like. And then, you know, for me, I noticed this rising of energy that surges up through my body and kind of comes up into like my face and my nose, but for everybody, everybody has their own unique signature. So the first thing is just saying, dear soul, what does my yes look like? Just feeling the energy in your body. For me, my mind starts kind of in my gut comes up through the heart, through the chest. And then I feel this like pulsing in my ears. Beautiful. Okay. And now you say. Is mine better than yours? There's no such thing. See, you say just the fact that you can do it is is all already amazing. Like that's oh, I'm that's a wizard. That's everybody tells me. <laughs> then then say, dear soul, show me what my no looks like. Notice what you feel and what happens. I feel this like tension in my like kind of chest from almost from like shoulder to shoulder. It's just like, yeah, this okay. constriction. 
Well, there you go, right? So now that you know how to do it, how to talk to that part of yourself and identifying with that as you, you start small. You say, dear soul, would you like chicken or beef, right? Something that's like not, that you're not hugely invested to. It's like, you don't start off with, should I leave this relationship? Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? I picked beef, like, by the way. Yeah. Should I have asparagus or broccoli? Right. So you, you start with these little small things that don't mean much and you start practicing with that. And you realize that the same technology that works in this sort of binary yes, no system can work to talk to any living species. So you can begin to talk to the souls of your children. You can go and put, put your hand on a plant and talk to the plant and say, dear plant, do you need more water right now? Yes or no. And through the same signature, like through Google Translate, right? The plant's speaking in like plant language, but you can throw it into Google Translate and it'll come out in your body with, through your signature with your yes and your no. I love this. So you start practicing these kinds of things and it takes a while to really learn that signature because what's really interesting about it is that the ego can do a very good job at impersonating the soul. Oh. Because the ego will do whatever it can to protect itself. The ego is your primary identity. So, you know, if you're really invested in eating a lot of cookies and you say, dear soul, you know, can we have some more Oreos, right? I'm keep getting yeses. I keep getting yeses, but like your soul's never going to tell you to do something that is against your overall well-being, uh, right? And so, it's it's really centering yourself, taking time to clear yourself, and wait till you feel centered. If you can imagine stepping into a pond and then seeing all of the ripples go, and then imagining waiting till all of those ripples go away and the pond is completely still again. And then asking the question and let the question bubble up from that place without a level of detachment to the outcome. And when you can do that, which is a hard practice, but something that's obviously very easy to do, you just did it. You can develop this soul, this soul connection where then through anything in your life, should we take this airplane or this airplane? You know, should we interview this guest or that guest? Should we eat this or should we fast? You know, and you can start to develop this, this relationship with your soul. And then when you're coming from that place, then, then you're, you're living your, your, with your full potential. Perfect. I'm glad we, that, that felt like a really nice soft landing and something that's very, very actionable for people listening and myself included. Like I just feel really good about that. I definitely, um, I want to go into one more area before we wrap and it's biogeometry and I'm, I'm fascinated by it. Perfect. Uh, I had a great conversation with Ryan who actually just showed up right now. I, I'd love to just like unpack that a little bit for people listening who are, who are new to it. And yeah, like, like you're like, what pulled you in again? Yeah. So biogeometry is something I'm very excited about as well. And, um, you know, it's something that requires a bit of like hum, kind of humbleness as well for me to talk about because it's such a extensive, uh, incredible science with, so many different layers, you know, Dr. Ibrahim Karim, the founder of biogeometry has been studying this his whole life. Right. So, you know, I'm coming at it from the position of uh, an advanced student, but at the same time, um, you know, there's so much more to learn that I haven't learned, but the idea being that Dr. Uh, Karim went around and studied all of the different sacred power spots on earth. Okay. So he went to the temples of Giza. He went to Stonehenge and all of these various sacred sites, you know, there were sites that when people went and done, uh, have done digs, you know, archeological digs, 
They have found that, you know, mosques have been built on top of churches that have been built on top of temples, you know, and each time you go down and you dig, you find another sort of um, sacred building that was built on top of itself, on top of something else throughout history. So, you know, he started to ask himself, like, what, what is it about the land? What is it about these sacred sites that people have been going to them for years and years and years? hundreds of years and even building them in the same spot. What was it about the, the, the energy of, of these spots that led these people there? And he started to realize that there was the same, a similar energy quality, um, a quality of, of light um, that is a little bit specific to get into, but it's called, he calls it BG3. So he found that in all of these sacred sites all around the world, he was able to measure through pendulums that they all had this quality called BG3, which is now, it's a, it's a sacred quality of energy. And it's a kind of energy that no matter who goes there, it balances you out. So if you go in there and you have like high blood pressure, it'll take you to your normal. If you go in there with low blood pressure, it'll bring you up. And it's not dose dependent. So it's like, you can't never get enough of being in one of these natural power spots of the earth. Wow. And so it's really what, what, what he found is the way that certain underground grid lines cross, some of them can be detrimental to our health and some of them can be super positive for health. And so all these sacred sites around the world had this spe- these specific crossings of grid lines that were, that were generating these power spots. And, you know, ancient cultures have been talking about this for in all over the world, right? So he had this ancient Aboriginal concept of dream time where they had these dream lines or these song lines where they can go and they could be in a particular spot that they knew where the the earth grid lines were and how they carried and give messages telepathically to people like, okay, I'm going to be in this particular spot at this particular time and send these messages through the song lines and they'd be received sometimes like, I don't even know, 50 miles away. And the person would, 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 would meet them there at the exact right time and place. And so people have been understanding how these things have been working for thousands of years. In fact, we look at ourselves as quite civilized society, but we still don't know how they built the pyramids. Yeah. Right. And things like that. Uh, is, are, is, are these kind of crossing of the grid lines, or the, would another word be vortexes is what we're seeing in like Sedona and Zion and, or is it those completely different maybe? You know, I, I, I'm not, I'm not an expert on that to, to, to say enough about the the vortexes, but basically they, they, they find, they create patterns um, of beneficial and non-beneficial energy. And so, you know, you might go out in nature and you'd be walking in a forest and all of a sudden you see a tree that's like kind of twisted and bent. It's a good possibility that that tree might be sitting on one of those, you know, detrimental grid lines. Right? And so remind me again, is this where the pendulum comes in or? Well, the pendulum is a tool to measure this, to interact with this energy. So it, you know, it gives us the opportunity to act and, and measure anything in this room from any one of these beings, you know, do, do it, does it have that quality? Two things. One, does it have that quality of BG3, which is the quality of energy found in a sacred power spot? Or if not, does it resonate with us? Is it in increasing my personal energy or decreasing my personal energy? So you can, you know, I can measure my own personal energy and then I could measure the piece of chicken or measure the piece of beef and see which one actually is going clockwise versus counterclockwise and raising my energy or lowering my energy. And that might be completely different for you to you, but 
what's what, what what's happening in these sacred power spots is he found that all these sacred power spots give out this quality of beneficial energy that's good for everybody. So, you know, you might have a set of tuning forks and, you know, uh, 693 might be good for you, but 396 might be the one that I need, right? But this is creating, a, this. these kinds of energies are not only good for one type of person. These are places that whoever walks in there is getting a healing response, mm. right? So that quality of energy is then brought into the home, let's just say. And so the idea is that, you know, uh, Wi-Fi, for example, is something like goes out at 50 hertz. You know, 5G has a very, very specific frequency. And, and the shape of that frequency and the, narrow, the narrowness of that frequency is, is, is detrimental to the human being. Because think about it, like, you know, when you're talking about, you know, your son wanting to only eat certain kind, like, you know, strict on kale, yeah. for example, having kale and chicken. Well, that's just one profile of potentially like a hundred different proteins he could eat and hundreds of different uh, vegetables and fruits that all have this variety and this diversity, right? Of, of nutrients and macronutrients and um, all sorts of things, vitamins, right? So the idea is when you, when you take biogeometry into the home by using shape, right? So they have these different, different, um, stickers and things that um, really alter. So it's a little bit difficult to explain because there's this concept of physics of quality where that like our taste, our tastes, the colors that we see, um, shapes of things, all of these are, are interacting. So, you know, we, we see the color red, but that's corresponding to like a chakra that's corresponding to a particular angle in nature. And, uh, you know, there's a whole science behind this, but the idea really is taking the things that we have, like this microphone or, or your Wi-Fi router and adjusting it in a way through color, like a color sticker in the right spot or through shape or through rotating it. So it's in the right relationship with its surroundings and various other techniques to create that BG3 in that product. And so now our cell phone that's putting out this signal that's quite a powerful signal or a Wi-Fi unit that's putting out this powerful signal, we're then applying this harmonious healing energy to it. So it's carrying the, the frequency of, the, of what it's doing. You can still pick up the Wi-Fi, but now there's this breath, there's this diversity of this harmonized frequency that it's going out with. And so you start, re you start basically applying this to, to different devices and throughout your life to consistently increase that level of BG3 or that kind of sacred, harmonious temple quality energy that resonates naturally from the earth, that is here from the earth to heal us and to keep us vital. And you bring that into your home and you apply that to your technology. Wow. So I know you're building a house with this like um, biogeometric uh, principles. Totally. Yeah. I'd love to talk about that too. So let's, so that's on the one end of the spectrum, we'll yeah. say. And the other end is people listening like, that sounds pretty cool. Like what's the 101 look like? How can I get started with this in a simple way? Low barrier. Yeah. Boom. Well, I mean, honestly, the, if you, if you're just interested in, in, in products, let's just say as one of the ways you can get a biogeometry pendant, which looks like this. And this, this is a lot of those around lately. Yeah, this is a shape that carries this shape 
because of the the way that it's it's shaped with the circle and then this thing here, the slit, this emits BG3. So this pendant is emitting that quality. So when I'm wearing it, it's affecting my entire field. It also has very interestingly these, what they call biosignatures, which is the shape of how energy flows through our organ systems. So this pendant is carrying probably like 50 or 75 different shapes of how harmonized energy would move through your kidney or your liver, or your heart, et cetera. So you're getting BG3 and you're harmonizing your organs. And this is just a, you know, like $150 thing. Where am I getting that? That's just Biogeometry's website. Okay. So yeah. is, is, what's the name of the website? Biogeometry? Biogeometry.com. We'll figure it out. We'll have it in the yeah. show notes for yeah. sure. And so that's, that's one way. And then they also have a product called um, the Home Kit, which has this cube, which I actually have in my bag. Oh. Um, we could pull it out. But. Pull that out. I'm curious. Remember Ryan was talking about the cube the other day. Like, yeah. I feel like I need a cube or a couple cubes. Well, one, one, one will probably be enough, but yeah. So there's you this, sure. Well, you know, one of these goes about, about 5,000 square feet. So oh, more or less yeah. to cover your house. Yeah. Perfect. So yeah. So this is a cube. And again, this is emitting BG3 into your space. And oh, so thank th you for bringing that. This comes in the home kit and uh, they also have various other attachments. Like one you can put on your water line. One you could put on your Wi-Fi router. One you can put on um, electrical panel, things like that. So these are pretty simple to do. You get the home kit. Right. So just, just to, to give you a little bit of, of background on this, how I got into this was I was living in New York City. Okay. I owned a penthouse on Bond Street on the seventh floor. What's up, player? Right. And um, I start, under, I start, we were actually, we moved into this place and we started having symptoms like not being able to sleep very well and other things were happening. And Paul Check told me, he's like, you know, you might want to look into EMFs and Wi-Fis and, and, you know, are there any wire, cell phone towers or anything like that around your place? So I look out my window and this is like the first time I'm even looking for something like this. And I see on like every building around me, huge like Verizon towers pointing like right at my window, right? So we hire a building biologist who comes in from Bow Biology, a German um, healthy home kind of um, business. And he comes in this gentleman and says, you have a hundred thousand like megahertz or whatever, however they measure it in your room. And like, you need like one for your cell phone to work. Right. So like these things are so powerful. The signals are putting out like well beyond what anyone needs to, to get. We're so focused on like, we must have good reception and download speed at all yeah. costs. Right. Mm -hmm. There's these like super powerful devices. Um, and so I'll get to the solution about that in a second. But so we basically, what we had to do is we had just built this whole place. We'd renovated the whole place. And now I'm freaked out that like my kids are living here. I can't sleep. There's so much infiltration of all of this negative energy. I started looking, you know, I turn on my Wi-Fi, and there's like 25 different Wi-Fi's oh, I pick yeah. up in the building. And I'm like, now I'm like getting turned on to this stuff. So I was taking it from um, a state of fear, right? So we move out. We have to re renovate again. And now we're putting up like shielding paint on the wall that we're then putting decorative covering under and over and shielding films on the windows. We're putting like stuff under our rugs and our carpets to shield the Wi-Fi from downstairs and basically making a very expensive Faraday cage. In Holy shit. How much did that cost? It costs a lot because, <laughs> yes. you know, I want to say this, so I don't want to turn people, it's, okay, it's not fair. actually necessary. I don't want to turn people off to this idea of shielding okay, because I appreciate that. if you do it, if you do it from, if you build it into your construction, let's say you're building a house, 
Or if you have a very, you know, if you just have like white walls and you want to paint over them with shielding paint and then put paint over it, it's not that expensive. Gotcha. But when you want to do it in a way that's like kind of decorative in the style of this like penthouse and taking down uh, a, a decorative de- decoration, you know, with different materials and different things that you have going on, then it, it was quite expensive. Gotcha. Yeah, it was cost of fortune, small fortune. And so we did this whole thing. Then I get turned on to this idea of, of biogeometry. <laughs> you know, and it's like with a $19 sticker, you can harmonize your Wi-Fi and, and produce BG3 into your whole house. Even with and, 100,000 megahertz, yeah. The, yeah. the, the idea is that it's, it's, it's not like being afraid of technology. It's not blocking technology. It's harmonizing technology. Gotcha. It's so much more like Ugh. with the Dow of things, Fuck, right? does that make sense? So yeah. like, you know, I went to a town meeting with um, a bunch of anthroposophists up in my, in my area. Hey, and, can you explain what an anthroposophist uh, is? You know, I, I guess anthroposophists, my brother would know a little more, but essentially students of Rudolf Steiner. Okay. Yeah. And so there's a group of these like underground anthroposophists. One of them was Dr. Tom Cowan, actually. Oh, he's yeah. been on the podcast. Yeah. He, so he was, he was there at this group. I can love him. And um, these are just cool people that are, are, are meeting and discussing, you know, just wellness and how to support the community. And, you know, they were sort of like up in arms about the idea of like, you know, 5G towers coming in and stuff like that. And I said to them, look, you know, we could, we could be the town that, that, that protests the tower. Um, we could be the town that goes and we could burn the tower down, you know? Yeah. And, but like, these things are coming no matter what. Why don't we be the first town that goes out and reaches to, out to Verizon and says, look, we want you to put this in our town, but you have to harmonize it. With biogeometry. How did, how was this received by like a Dr. Thomas Cowan? Well, I, I think he was pretty open-minded. I'm was sure. he into biogeometry at all? Or? He was, a, he, he had talked about it on YouTube. So I don't know to the extent that he has it incorporated into his life, but he's very knowledgeable about it. Yeah. And so I was just talking about my experience again, from a place of real humbleness, because by no means am I an expert in this. This is like, like a, a lifetime science to, to go all the way. But um, I was just speaking about it from my experience and I was just kind of showing them, I was using it as sort of as a metaphor. You know, we didn't have an active tower that's coming in, but this idea of like, instead of going against it, how to go with it, how to use technology to also for our benefit, for all of the you know, benefits like, hey, we're, we're broadcasting this now to thousands of people, right? Versus doing it also in a way that is, is creating health and circulating um, wellness and wholeness, right? And this is really what like businesses need to get back to. This is what, you know, all of the, all of these producers of these cell phones and towers and all this technology, how to create it in a way that's in reciprocity with the laws of nature so that we can use this technology to support ourselves, not only in making our lives easier, but making ourselves healthier. Mm. And so biogeometry really is able to just work with what you have in your home, the way you have it and harmonizing it so that you begin to resonate. It's not like you block out those other frequencies, but you begin to raise the level of that harmony in your house and in yourself so high that you're just in resonance now with that higher frequency, with that more you know, full spectrum, we'll say, frequency versus this like narrow band that's causing you re- repetitive you know, immunity attack, like eating chicken you know, for the rest of your life, every single day, like, mm. like most, a lot of people do 
sure. only have about seven to 10 foods. They know about seven to 10 exercises, right? They probably, you know, have even more narrow bands around many other parts of their life, but really opening up to the full diversity of life, the full diversity of, of light and of sound and of this full spectrum living. And that's really what body geometry is doing. It's working with the laws of nature, the way that nature naturally creates harmony, and then applying that into the space, knowing that we are our environment and how to do that in an elegant way. Mm. Well, I'm curious, you know, we're, we're getting ready to build a place and, you know, short of what, what you've done with, you know, the, the intention of your home and land being, you know, in coherence with biogeometry, like what are some things like the architecture is already done? Like what are some simple things? Totally. Is simply just getting the home kit or are there some other things you can do? There's, I mean, this is one of those things where you can go, you can layer it to the infinite degree, right? But I'll just tell you a little bit about what, about what we're doing. First of all, when you're looking for land, look at is the, well, the place where the home site is going to be. Is that a power spot? Is that a place that naturally has an energy or is it a place that has a lot of detrimental energy? I'm putting that into, first into your decision-making process. Now, the thing about biogeometry is that unlike feng shui that comes into your house and says, you could never live there or you have to have eight things on this wall and four things on this wall. I'm like, why? Well, because we say so. There's no measurement. There's no pendulum showing you, look, look, your energy is increasing, right? Or it has this quality, but there's these rules around that. Biogeometry works with whatever you have, right? So if you have a house that's already built out, they're not going to come in and tell you to move anything around. It's like, how do we work with what we have to harmonize it? But in the context of trying to do everything with the utmost intention from the beginning, first you'd look at the land that you're buying and the land itself and particularly the home spot. What is the quality of energy? Then when you're designing the house, you design it with biogeometry principles so that the design itself has this sort of the right flow of energy and the right quality of energy in the design. And you could work with through many different ways, like the way things interface with each other, through the shape of the house, through the relationship from the ceiling height to the width of the room, all of these different ways, there's so many creative ways through the color scheme to create this kind of quality of energy. You know, for us, when we pick our well, I was on FaceTime in Egypt. I mean, I was here, but in upstate New York where I'm building this house, but I was FaceTiming with Dr. Kareem in Egypt and he's measuring and saying, put your well right there. Mm. And so our well has biogeometry. So when we're tapping down, we're tapping into water that's coming from an underground reservoir that has the quality of that temple water, right? When we're putting in the water line to the house, we have particular shapes on it. So as the water's moving into the house, it's being harmonized. When we put the, the electrical lines in from the street, I was out there putting attachments on them, sending pictures to Dr. Kareem and his daughter, Dorea, who were measuring as well and saying, yeah, this is now, now your electricity is harmonized. Now your data line is harmonized. Now your cable is harmonized. In terms of building the house itself, of course, there's all the information about building it with non-VOC and healthy uh, materials. And there's a lot of information on that that you could find. But also they have this process of, collecting a sample of every building. So we have, we're collecting a one inch sample of every building material from the cement all the way up to the paint, everything that's being used in our house, we're collecting. 
And then at the end, what you can do is they have this wheel. Imagine like a wheel with all these little circles that go into an interior circle, all with these little place, little holes in them. And you take each building material one at a time and you put a sample of it in its particular spot in this wheel based on where that gets BG3, then where the next one is and relationship to those two. And then the third one in relationship to the first two and that one. And you build this, this matrix of every material in your house. So every material is held in relationship to each one and brings harmony. And then you have that in your house and that brings BG3 now to all of your building materials. Okay. The way the house is oriented on the space, because you know, the, you know, the direction of these grid lines. So putting your house in an orientation with the BG3 lines. So that you, now you're on that flow, putting your garden in that, the way that the different, the relationship of the different parts of, on your property are to each other, the shape of the driveway. So it has the right flow, the shape of the pool, the shape of the trails on your property. All of these things can be added so that there's just this level of intent and mindfulness. And each one of those increases the level of, of, of BG3. And then when you're done with all of that, then you can do all the things that people could do now still in their home, right? You measure and you see what still needs to be tweaked. Oh, there's a few objects in my house that are holding out. Okay, so how do I address those specifically? Or how do I rotate those so that they're in the right position with the rest of the environment to bring literally every single thing in your house up to that level of, of uh, sacred energy? Is this something that, that you've just studied and you know how to do this or you've got, you know, Dr. Kareem, do you have other, other people in your area? Like who is yeah. helping you sort out what ain't working? Well, so I, what I would recommend to anybody is taking the foundational training with biogeometry. It's like a three week course. You meet every couple of days. There's like very kind of simple homework assignments, but it's an incredible education to do this yourself. You know, my wife, Kara, um, she originally got introduced to this and she took the foundational course and she came home and we, you know, we saw, I just saw her doing all these amazing things. And then, so, you know, we had already hired actually, we, the way it started was we had hired a practitioner to come to our house and do this all. And when the practitioner came, this is to the house I'm living in now that I'm renting for the last three years, we had, when we moved into this house, we had this horrible smell of sulfur water, right? I don't know if you ever smelled like like hard water. Yeah. It smells like shit. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Literally, and so yeah. we put in this whole filtration system. We could not get this, this out. These biogeometry bio practitioners came into our house, put little stickers and corrected grid lines. By the end of the first day, the smell was gone what? And, and it never came back. What? Yeah. And you know, I've had a lot of really trippy experiences that I could go on and on that just proved to me that this is a really powerful thing that's happening. Um, even relationships in my family. But um, once we saw that power, she went and took the class and then she came home and I saw how, how, how empowered she was. You know, it's like the same way that I talked about Sanskrit, having a language for spirituality, right? What we call spirituality, having a language for that now. Now biogeometry gave us a language to interact with nature, Ooh. right? So now everything in nature becomes alive because I can talk to it through my pendulum and see, you know, does it have BG3? How is it responding to my energy? Is this plant making me stronger or weaker, et cetera? And so it, get, it opened us up to this whole like, oh my God, like the whole environment is interacting with us and we're in constant communication, but we don't know how to talk. And now I had, I, you know, had this skill set. So I went and took the foundation class. 
and we took the advanced class together. Um, the next level of class would be becoming a certified practitioner, which they haven't been able to do for a while because of restrictions with traveling. They're from Egypt and they haven't been able to get to the United States, but that would be the next level for me. But you know, whether or not you want to be a certified bio, um, biogeometry practitioner and be able to go to people's homes and correct grid lines and do all that, taking the foundational training should be, again, like a one-on-one thing we learn you know, when we're learning about the soul, we should learn about how to interact with our environment. So I think it's foundational training for anybody and I highly recommend it. Um, the other way would be to, to get a biogeometry practitioner from your area to come to your house and tune it up and to teach you. And, you know, I'd recommend doing both depending on someone's level of funding. Yeah, that sounds, oh, dude, fascinating. And I'm, I'm really feeling, as, as my schedule opens up now, like it feels, that feels real purposeful. Oh yeah. I mean, I love, I love the idea of really diving into that and then, and seeing kind of where it goes. Gosh. Yeah. And you should get them on your podcast. At least get Derea. Uh, yeah. Dr. Kareem's daughter. She's amazing. Done. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited to explore this. I know we, I talked about it with Ryan uh, when he was on the podcast, but. Yeah. Ryan came to my house and felt the energy and felt what, what was happening in my space. And then he went and took the foundational training. Yeah, so tell me this, how do you stay like not over obsessive with it? Like, oh, that's not quite right. You know, I can imagine even with yeah. like EMFs, I, I remember listening to Luke, a good friend now, but Luke's story on a podcast with uh, Bruce Lipton. Luke was like super like cognizant of the EMFs and where he was. And it was almost like it was making it worse because he like knew too much and didn't he wasn't harmonizing with it, certainly, but well, like, that, how, that, do you, how, do you, how do you stay in a good relationship with it? I, I, I think it, it takes a paradigm shift because for me, I was living in such fear of EMFs, okay? Which is a healthy fear uh, if you don't take some precautions, right? I mean, you can't just say, oh, I'm just not going to worry about all these Wi-Fi units and these cell phone towers and stuff and all the computers I'm on and you know, the electric car I'm driving and sitting on top of a battery and this and that. You know, you can't, you can't just ignore it. But my original idea was sort of being in fear of it. So I'd have switches in my house that would turn the Wi-Fi off and turn it on, right? And I would like cut the electricity off at night. And I would be like, you know, screaming at my family, like you left the Wi-Fi on. Oh my God. Like, you know, that's like the worst thing you could do. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then, then switching to this idea that it's not about being afraid of it. It's about harmonizing with it. And, you know, I, I, I practice muscle testing a lot just to see the response of something on my body. And one of the things that tripped me out the most is, you know, I have my, I was having my wife muscle test me and I was finding that, of course, you're going to go weaker with a non-harmonized Wi-Fi unit on versus off. You, your body is not going to lie to you. So, you know, when, when you, for muscle testing, you know, if some, if you take your arm and just say, show me the yes, just like the soul, show me my no, you'll find that when you, when your body's giving you a no response or a response that's not in truth, you'll go weaker because, you know, our DNA is, was built in a way that we are stronger when we're in truth. Because if we were lying to our tribe, like let's say we stole some food from our tribe, right? That could put the whole tribe at risk. So, you know, the same way that like um, a lie detector te test might work or something like that, our body gives off a response to, to if we're in congruence with what we're saying. So just if you say, you know, my name is Cal and, or my name's Jared, for example, 
your body will be stronger or weaker based on that. And everyone can test this, you know, through various different ways. You can use your finger like this or your arm or even your leg, right? So we were, you know, and again, you can test this in biogeometry, but just through pure muscle testing, I found that actually the Wi-Fi on with the biogeometry on it made me stronger than the Wi-Fi off, which was just like crazy for me yeah. to think about. But I started to realize that it's not about blocking. It's not about being in fear. It's just about harmonizing your space and then resonating with that energy, learning what, what is the feeling quality of BG3? How does that feel inside of myself? Wearing the, you know, the appropriate protection, harmonizing your space, and then just like letting go. You know, like I go on, a, I go on an airplane I, to, the, to fly here. You know, I have my cube on my tray table. I'm wearing my pendant and I have my cube. And then don't worry about it. And I realize that I'm also giving love to everybody on that plane because I'm harmonizing the whole space and I'm improving their lives and the pilots and the stewardesses, right? And all the impacts that they're having on their families and all the people they're going to be meeting throughout the day. And so you start just resonating this sort of this quality of energy. And that really elevates you well over the obsession of the fears of all that. I mean, I wouldn't want to be on that plane without my biogeometry. Um, but when I have that on me, with me, I feel totally safe and I feel great because I'm actually adding, I'm bringing life to life. That's like real art and love, you know? Mm. Wow. I feel like that's a great place to just land it. That was, I'm already looking forward to the next time we get on here. Me man. too. Yes, Dan, we are just scratching the surface. How, uh, how, never can, enough. how can people get in touch with you? Yeah. So, um, I'm developing a website that'll be out called uh, jasonpicard.org. And that's the best way to contact me. Um, I'll also leave my email with you so that people can just email me directly. Yep. And uh, yeah, check, check me out and see what I'm, what I'm up to. And, yeah, and what can people expect to, to work with you? What does that look like? Yeah. So, you know, it's life process coaching would be, you know, going, going through your, your whole life process from, you know, your childhood myths and your dreams, where you're at in your relationships, what you want to accomplish you know, looking at the, the dreaming nature of your life and dreams at night and your fantasies and hopes for yourself, going through all of the different aspects of the check system um, from, you know, Dr. Quiet, Dr. Movement, Dr. Diet, Dr. Happiness, you know, looking at all of that and how to be a, an optimized individual, um, things like meditation and Tai Chi and inner work, um, do a lot of work with art and music and shamanism, different types of shamanic practices. Um, and just really about me helping you find your, your wholeness and, and your, your fullest potential. I can't think of anyone better to do it, brother. I love this. Thanks from, man. from trader to, I don't even, I'm going to put a label on it. Just being probably human. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming here, brother. Thank you. Yes. You've been listening to the great unlearn. For more information, check out the show notes or head over to thegreatunlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events, retreats, and the TGU store. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe and share this with friends who might enjoy our platform. Don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review as it really helps us spread the love and unlearning. You can find me on Instagram at cal.callahan and on YouTube under The Great Unlearn. 
Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon. No, no different, only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned.